welcome to the Vevolution podcast. Since starting in late 2016, Vevolution has been creating inspiring events for the plant-powered generation. Each episode of this podcast will share with you stories and ideas told by plant-based thought leaders from the Vevolution stage. By Chloe have now opened their latest restaurant, Icon, at the O2 Greenwich Peninsula, London. By Chloe provides classic taste, plant-based, all-vegan food. At Vevolution, we can't get enough of our favourite, the pesto meatball sub. Head to eatbychloe.com to explore your nearest By Chloe restaurant and start enjoying delicious plant-based goodness today. On August the 11th, Vevolution hosted an event with By Chloe at their stunning new restaurant at the O2 in Greenwich Peninsula, London. We invited speakers to talk about business, food and sustainable fashion. And first up is Bee Burney from Bee's Bakery, who explains how and why she made the move to align her business with her ethics. Um, okay, so my name is Bee and I run a business, like the guy said, um, called Bee's Bakery Limited. Um, my, the talk that I'm going to give, which I want to be very casual and open-ended, and if anyone has any questions, just shout them and put your hand out. But basically, my talk is called, Oh Shit, I've Got a Business That Is Profiting Off the Exploitation of Animals, and How the Hell Do I Change This? So um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my journey and my story, how I founded the business, what I was doing before, and the point at which I realized I can't keep going like this not just on a personal level, but the level of the business and how I've kind of made changes over the last few years to be almost completely plant-based as a bakery now. Um, so that's what I'm going to talk about and jump in with any questions as I go through. I'll try not to swing too much. Um, so I established the business in 2012. I am actually a medical microbiologist by training, so a proper nerdy scientist, and I did that job for six or seven years. Um, and if there's an industry that is kind of worse ethically than the pharmaceutical industry in which I worked, I don't really know what it is. Um, so I've kind of ticked off some of the real big bad ones in my career path so far. Um, I set up a, a biscuit baking business in 2012. That was how I started. Um, and in 2012, that was kind of at the beginning of this real movement of food trucks in London and independent small food businesses. So I was just really riding the wave of that. And I um, left my kind of well-paid, safe, normal, nine to seven kind of office job um, and went out on my own. Um, and... When I started, it was really dynamic and there were loads of people starting up their businesses and it was such a fantastic community um, and lots of people to learn from and share experiences from. Just out of interest, is there anyone in the room who has their own um, plant-based or otherwise business or work for a startup? Okay, cool. All right. Sort of. <laughs> Ticks a lot of boxes. Okay, um, and is anyone trying to make it more plant-based or change something that is kind of central to the business as it exists? Trying to make changes in the business or the way they are? Okay, cool. Good. Um, that helps. So basically, I was making businesses. Um, I had a small food truck. I was selling my biscuits with messages and words and images on them out the back of this truck. And I had some really good early success. Um, I was turning a profit, which was amazing. 
I was supplying some huge, great stores like Harrods and Selfridges and Harvey Nichols. I'd got a two-book deal within the first year of having the business. I was doing really well. You know, I thought I was building my definition of a sustainable business, albeit one that just paid me regularly. That was my definition of sustainability. Um, and I was rocketing. I, I loved it. Um, but ultimately, what I was doing was building a business that was totally ignorant of um, the origins of the products that I was creating and the, the ingredients of the products I was making. Um, so fast forward a couple of years later to 2016, I had a happy accident and I had a baby. And um, she's a girl and she's nearly three now. And at that point, I knew my business would have to change a little bit anyway because I wanted to be a present parent as well as being a kind of present boss or producer or head baker or the person that takes the bins out and does the deliveries all these different jobs you do when you run your own business um and when the baby was about six months old I had wedding cakes that I needed to deliver and I was breastfeeding her and so I was trying to put her onto a formula for some of the time so that I could leave the house for a few hours that I needed to to, to deliver these wedding cakes now at this point I had chosen um what I thought was a really good cow's milk formula, right? It's called Kendermill. It's made with cow's milk from um, the Lake District. They're happy cows. They're free-range, organic, pasture-bred. All these phrases that ultimately don't really mean anything. Um, and I was looking at the difference between that milk, which was maybe three times the price of, you know, Nestle's sort of entry-level budget baby milk. And I was kind of Googling, what is the actual real difference between these two products that I want to put into my child? Is there any real difference? And at, at this point, I came across information about cows that I had just been blind to before, you know, the stuff that everybody knows now about in order for a cow to produce milk, she has to be a mother. But if the baby is drinking the milk, then humans can't drink the milk. So the baby's taken away. And at this point, I was like, holy shit. How have I been so ignorant? Right, I've got a degree in medical sciences. I should have some level of intel on this. I had none. Um, so I realized, you know, that the difference in the milk was, was irrelevant. You know, nutrient-wise, there are plant milks that are as good, if not better, than... Um, cow's milk formula, particularly for infants and babies. And this information stuck in the back of my head um, for a few months as I was lifting, you know. At work, we order in our butter, our cow's milk butter. We used to. Uh, we ordered it in 25 kilo blocks. So as I was hoofing this massive block onto the workbench, I would just be thinking, what is in this? What am I doing with this huge pile of, you know, albeit delicious butter, this isn't cool anymore. And that kind of um, stuck in my mind over time. And people say that change happens outside your comfort zone. And at that point, I was definitely not in my comfort zone anymore. I was, you know, not happy with what I was making and selling and not happy with what I was profiting from. So at that point, I thought, okay, great. I've got a massive problem here. Like the, the basis of my business is not something I feel comfortable with. And how the hell do I change this? Like, what am I gonna have to do? How am I gonna be able to create a business that I feel morally comfortable with? Is it even possible? Am I gonna have to go for a third career? Am I gonna have to completely scrap this and do something different? And I was like, I didn't have the energy to do a whole new job. I didn't feel. 
Um, I didn't want to lose the career equity, if you like, that I'd built. I'd spent three or four years kind of setting up the business and establishing it and getting a reputation, getting PR coverage and enjoying the process and building a team and learning how to make money consistently. Um, when I say make money, it really was not very much money, as most startup people will know, but it was you know, reasonably consistent. So, okay, I thought, right, I'm going to have to rebuild this business. And that was no mean feat, considering I had essentially a newborn kid as well. Um, now, I just felt totally overwhelmed at this point. And um, not to be like the white girl quoting a rap star, but there's a lyric of <laughs> a hip-hop song by Jay-Z where he talks about challenges in life. And he says, basically... Difficult takes a day and impossible takes a week. Now, I don't think that's strictly true, but it made me think, okay, this is hard. This is going to be difficult, but it's going to be achievable, particularly if I'm committed to this business as a, a lifestyle that I want to grow old doing or at least grow a bit older doing. Um, so I was thinking about, instead of overhauling everything, thinking about how can I make small incremental changes, little things that I can tick off my list that will actually help me to pivot my business rather than completely scrap it and start again. Um, bearing in mind here that my client base loves butter and eggs. Like they are addicted probably, but this is what they're into and this is what they buy from me. You know, there's no, it's a difficult conversation to have. Um, so I started off doing a few little tweaks, like I would swap cow's milk butter for vegan butter or vegetable butter. And that was an easy, quick win. No one could really tell. I felt confident enough in my recipes that they worked. And then I started testing new recipes um, with varying degrees of success. But, you know, it was a bit of a pro recipe testing. I'd published two books by this point, so I had at least a bank of recipes to go from. Um, but the thing that really stumped me was messaging because ultimately I've got, if I want to move my business from a dairy and egg bakery business to a plant-based business, I don't want to alienate my existing clients. I don't want to lose them completely because ultimately, yes, I want to be conscientious, I want to be sustainable, but I also really need to get my rent paid ultimately. So I started thinking about messaging and I worked in public relations for pharmaceutical companies previously. So I was thinking about, okay, how can I communicate my new messages? Is it worth having that conversation? And at certain points I thought, you know what, it's actually not. Because my existing clients, for example, Harrods, uh, sort of Harrods bakery buyers, and you know, um, the buyers that source all the products for their Christmas hampers, they don't care. They really are not interested in having a difficult conversation with you about the ethics of the product that makes them hundreds and thousands of pounds every year. They just don't care. So I had to kind of go a little bit under the radar and start to tweak some of the ingredients of their products without changing everything. Um, but I also wanted to try and attract new customers. Um, and that was the easy bit for me because I know, I feel confident in myself to make a delicious, beautiful cake that happens to be plant-based. I had a few recipes that worked for me that I could really, you know, be confident in. Um, and my messaging kind of switched from being a cool, quirky, independent bakery in London to being a cool, quirky, independent bakery in London that happens to be vegan. So I was making 
the same level of products, if not better, and I believe they're better, and most people who are vegan or partially plant-based believe that they are better because they have all of the thought processes that go on behind them. So I was making the same products, if not better, taste-wise, that happen to be plant-based. And that kind of worked for me in terms of messaging for my existing clients. The easiest way I found, and the most reliable long-term I found in terms of pitching to new clients or changing people's opinions on vegan baking is to kind of show them what the product looks like, how it tastes, and not to tell them, not to lead with words. And you can't be eating cow's milk because X, Y, Z. But if I can show you something that is delicious and looks great and that happens to have these other benefits too, then that seems to be the holy grail. At least it was for me in that sort of transition period. Um... So I was adapting existing recipes and building new ones. And from a very kind of practical perspective, the way it works for me now, I don't go in leading with plant-based for every new client that approaches me. I wait to see what they are looking for. And for example, I make wedding cakes. um, And quite often that involves cake sampling. People want to taste it before they spend, you know, a sizable chunk of dosh on it. So I will now send um, out boxes of the recipes that they've selected with their vegan counterparts. And sometimes I label them, sometimes I don't. Sometimes we do blind tasting, sometimes we don't. I just read the vibe of the person that I'm working with. Because I'm not not trying to be better. You know, I'm not trying to show them up. I'm not trying to prove them wrong. I'm not trying to make them feel bad or alienate them from the choice process. But ultimately, if I've got confidence in my recipes, then they speak for themselves. And it's, again, back to this whole showing and not telling thing. Um, For existing clients, it's been a little bit more tricky. But, again, it works on that premise that I I share a sample with them and explain to them what's different about it. And quite often for existing clients that are a bit more stuck in the mud or traditional, however you want to describe it. For example, um, Clarins or Bare Essentials, Bare Minerals, Topshop and Stella McCartney, they are, some of them have vegan brands and vegan products, which is brilliant, and that the bakes work for them. But um, they are perhaps more motivated with dietary intolerances. So if I can say, well, this is delicious, it happens to be dairy-free or gluten-free for all of, you know, your press launch and all, you know, all the different journalists that might have those requirements, that works well. Um, so that's kind of my experience of how... I've slightly managed to adapt my business, and it's an ongoing process for sure. Um, in a way, I have had to relearn the industry and learn what messages work and learn about how people receive new information. Um, and some of the... I've written down... I tried to do a list of all of my existing clients and, and what proportion of my business is now vegan, and it's probably about 85 to 90%, which is brilliant. I still do supply a couple of long-standing clients with products that aren't vegan, and it makes me feel very, very uncomfortable. And I get my assistant to bake them so that I don't have to deal with it, which is really, it's not cool, really. But over time, we're chipping away at the problem, I feel, and I feel comfortable with that. Um, Some of the other results here that I've spotted are that I do get occasionally dairy farmers on Instagram slagging me off. (laughs) When I am more opinionated on Instagram, I do get people, not trolling me, but, you know, 
making funny comments. But, you know, fine, challenge me on it. I'll happily talk about it. Um, I have probably lost clients. The reality of it is that, that I have maybe lost 15% of my existing long-term clients. Um, but I think that's normal in any business over time. I've been going for quite a few years now, and I think there is a drop-off. People do lose interest, or they want the next newest bakery that isn't me anymore. So I'm not too worried about that. Um, I am occasionally filled with regret over having baked with such rank things for so many years, but it created a foundation on which I was able to kind of have a very small platform to communicate that baking with plants is better, and that's something I'm happy with. Um, and my mental health and peace of mind has massively improved, um, particularly in the last year or so. So my main learning from all of this is that a huge sweeping change is difficult, but tiny little tweaks or little pivots in different directions are easier. Um, and that has applied to my life as well. I mean, I was thinking today about what shoes I was going to wear, and I've got a really nice pair of old leather Converse that I really like. And I thought, right, that's not appropriate. Someone will call you up on that, and it'll be really embarrassing. But ultimately, I'm not going to throw them away. I'm going to wear them into the ground, and they'll be the last pair of leather shoes I ever buy. And I see that as more of a tweak than a sweeping change. I'm not going to just waste them and throw them away. So that applies to the way I eat out. Um, I went out for a meal the other night to Wagamama's with some girlfriends, and everybody else is eating me. And they, my girlfriends are not this particular set. They really couldn't give a flying anything about what they're eating, whether it's an animal or not. And I can't tell them. I've, tried, I've taken them to Genesis. I've brought them here, and they humor me, but it's not they're not on that bit of the journey yet. But if I show them by always eating vegan and enthusing about how delicious it is, then hopefully I'm chipping away at them. So that's what I was going to share. And I'm more than happy to answer any questions at all. Um, in terms of really practical stuff, there is one of my favorite vegan cake recipes on the Vivolution blog. It's a banana vegan cake with chocolate chips and pecans. And there's loads on my Instagram, which is at Bees Bakery. B-E-E, -E, the flying creature, not B-E-A, Beatrice. <laughs> Any questions? Um, you say that most of your clients now are, are vegan. Um, are they... Ve do you know if, when you spoke to them, are they vegan about the, um, the animal issues or are they vegan about the health issues? Or is it a combination of both? Or? So for the sort of bigger corporate or shop clients, they are vegan because they know they have vegan customers. But ultimately, they're bakery buyers, so they're also buying loads of fresh cream tarts and all these different things. So the, the ethics is, doesn't even... I don't know, but I would imagine the ethics is not really crossing their mind. But from a wedding cake perspective, it is... It's probably, like it is for a lot of people, a different reason on a different day, I would say. Like on a Monday, I'm motivated by health. So I'm trying to eat well, to be healthy, to have more energy. By a Friday, when I'm a bit pissed and I really want a crispy chili beef, I'm motivated by remembering that this is not, I don't want to be responsible for killing of animals. So I think it's the same for, I mean, what motivated you guys? Sorry to like answer a question with a question. But did you, did you ever think about having a tier of your cake that was non-vegan? 
Because you had no, no. four, right? You had four tears. Four tears. Is that a lot? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we just wanted to showcase that, you know, you can eat delicious cake made, made from plants. And, you know, a lot of people at our wedding weren't, weren't vegan, but yeah. everyone came back to us and said that was incredible, that cake. That's so, what we need to hear. you know, that was the motivation for us. It was our chance to showcase that, you know, you can do wonderful things with plant-based baking. So showing, not telling, yeah. Yeah, like, and that's actually with the whole of evolution. Like, it's all been about showing and sharing, not not telling people, not judging people. And mm. that's, lo- like, why, you know, been going for three years and have thousands of people come, because people like to be shown and be part of a journey and experience yeah. together rather than, like, shouted out and told. I think, yeah. I think your way of advocacy and the way you're going about it is actually really smart. Yeah. And I think that will, in long term, will help you, you know, find those new customers. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, I mean, I, I make uh, raw vegan gluten-free cakes, and I've been like, I've gone from the beginning shouting all those benefits because it's I started it for my own health reasons as well. But yeah. um, things like refined sugar, do you avoid those in in yours, or do you? No, not the sugar. Okay. Not unless I'm specifically asked. I have recipes which have unrefined sugar in them, yeah. um, which happen to be delicious as well. But when you're making a cake, people have expectations about a sponge cake. It's got to be light. It's got to be fluffy. It's got to be moist. It's got to be... And if you're changing some of the components that would give it all of those characteristics, and then you also take the sweet. I mean, ultimately, people want sweet cakes. So I tend to think if I'm losing the cow's milk and I'm losing the, the chicken eggs, I'm going to keep the sugar white. Because um, they need to get that kick from somewhere, I think. I love my sugar, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> too. Okay. Hello. Hello. Um, I often find that vegan ingredients are more expensive. Um, did you find that your running costs went up and was that... A factor in the transition maybe being more difficult for you yeah that's a good point I think some of them are I think some of the other problems are that they are really unsustainable so for example I used to use cow's butter in sponge cakes and now I use um, and then I went to using stork which does a firm block of vegetable butter and it's cheap great but it's got so much palm oil in it that you're ruining the earth in a whole different way with that product and then there's a newer product called naturally which is a danish butter it's delicious but it's almost two or three times the price um however to counteract that eggs are good good quality eggs whatever that means are about 20p each so if you've got four in a batch then you've already got an extra almost a pound to play with so it kind of works out. Um, it kind of works out about equal, I think. Um, ultimately, I wasn't changing the design of the cake either. So I do a lot of cakes with edible flowers on the top, on, on around them. If anyone looks at my Instagram, you'll see I sort of spam with that. And I u- source a lot of those from an organic farm in Devon. But I have actually been able to grow a lot more of them myself in my little rubbish garden at home means I don't have to spend all of that money on those so I'm sort of balancing it out over time making little changes 
Also, just one other really boring thing on that. Sorry to go back. There are a lot of products. For example, dairy-free dark chocolate. You can spend six quid on a bar, no problem at all. But if you, and that's for a vegan certified bar, which I agree is the holy grail. That's what you really want to be using. That's what I would love to use. But also, Asda do a dairy-free dark chocolate bar that's 27p that hap- is accidentally vegan. It's not vegan certified. It's made in a factory that handles milk. But chances are, it's just about, it, you know, it's, it may contain traces of dairy. And for some of my recipes, that's fine. So there's always that accidentally vegan ingredient thing. So are you having to charge uh, more of a premium um, than for your vegan cakes? Not necessarily, because um, some of my res- most of my recipes... Um, they basically, they're not, they're not, they don't contain premium ingredients. One of the best sponge cake um, recipes I've got is based around curdled soya milk, which is not an expensive ingredient, or curdled plant milk. I can make my own oat milk, and it's pennies. Um, so no, not really. Not overall, I wouldn't say. If it's, you know, um, a really fancy dark chocolate cake with pecans and golden pistachios and all this other stuff, then yeah, sure. But no, I wouldn't say so. I'm, I believe in honest pricing and kind of um, not charging a premium just because I can. I don't want to take... I would rather people find vegan cakes affordable than be priced out. I just got my first um, wholesale customer retail shop in, in Ealing, so I'm really happy. And my biggest challenge, because I'm new to all of this, is figuring out how much to charge. I mean, I charge 450 for like a cupcake or a slice of yeah. the cake to tiramisu or whatever it is. But I, I mean, it costs me a pound to make each slice. And I'm yeah. like, how do you work out your, your wholesale customer? Prices. So I don't do very much wholesale anymore, which tells you that for me over time it wasn't really working. Um, but basically most resellers, so places like Harrods, or I've worked with Dalesford Organic for years, they are reasonably transparent about what margin they need to make. So they, for example, not the ones that I said, just so I don't get in trouble, some of them want 65%, 55% margin. So then that tells you immediately what you're going to get from that um and it you know maths is not my strong point but you have to do i had to do a spreadsheet to understand whether i was going to get paid and you know it's it's very easy to figure out you know 100 grams of flour costs this much 100 grams of sugar costs that much but also what is your time costing how much do you want to be paid an hour you know i've been doing this for seven years i don't want to be paid eight quid an hour anymore it doesn't justify me being away from my child so I need to I put my prices up to reflect the fact that I've got seven years worth of expertise and, you know, so decide on what your hourly rate is and try and factor that in. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Next, Damien Clarkson interviews the founders of Dapper as they discuss the challenges they've faced with entrepreneurship. Hi everyone, welcome back. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Justin and Ollie from Dapper. How's it going, guys? I'm I'm good. How are you, Oliver? Very well, thanks. Great. Um, so we're going to talk about a whole range of things today about entrepreneurship and th- these guys' journey and what they're doing with Dapper. Um, so 
tell us about your backgrounds. What were you both doing before you got into ice cream? I've been, I suppose, in the kind of ice cream space for a few years now. Um, people, yeah, people often ask, how did you get into that? And I d the answer is, I don't really know. Just kind of fell into it. Just obsessed with, you know, the ice cream man when you were kids. Well, I, well, I was. I did used to, uh, kind of run after the ice cream man to the next road in my bare, f you know, bare feet kind of thing as a kid. That was definitely something that used to happen. But I never thought I'd end up in ice cream. Like it's, it's totally random. But uh, I had, yeah, I had a couple of different things, and then kind of fizzled out. And then Ollie and I met um, on a spiritual retreat, actually, in the south of France. Was this a ayahuasca retreat? It was the ayahuasca yeah. retreat, yeah. <laughs> Didn't know how PG-13 we were going. No, there's nothing wrong with that stuff. Um, but yeah, we met and we really had it off. And I mean, I'll let Ollie talk about his background because they're two very different backgrounds, really. There are, a lot, there are some parallels. Yeah. We're both unhappy doing things at points in our lives, and then we've kind of come together to do this. But um, yeah, Ollie, Ollie's better at telling that story, I think. Um, I used to work in the corporate kind of grind. Since I left university, I was just on that conveyor belt of do your exams, get a job, get another job, try and get promoted. Uh, and I did that for like the best part of 15 years, ending up in a, in a finance job, private equity. So, you know, in theory, I was earning good money and doing something of a high profile and important, but I realized I was utterly miserable doing it. Um, so, you know, there's a, it seems to be quite a common route from finance and private equity into vegan startup food businesses. <laughs> totally, yeah. <laughs> People just go, oh, right, another finance guy who's, who's doing a vegan startup. It's like eye roll territory, but I never planned. It, it was never my plan. I always sort of wanted to run my own business, but never quite had a, a product or an idea that I could really get behind. Um, and then I tried Justin's ice cream, and that was like a very, it was a game changer. I was just like, oh, because I was, I'm sure we'll probably talk about my uh, route to, to veganism, but at that point I couldn't care less about what was in ice cream, but I tried it and I was like, this is legit, this is amazing, I can't believe there's no milk in it, which is what everyone else feels when they taste it. So. Yeah, my journey to vegan ice cream business was via the by the person Justin and by the product that he created. Great. And so, um, have you found you know transitioning into being an entrepreneur and how how's that been going? Amazing. I mean, I'm so much happier uh, than I ever was doing that grind. You know, getting on the tube, putting a suit on, uh, taking orders from someone I didn't really like or respect that much. Um, and having the freedom now to do what we want to do is amazing. Uh, you know, people think that people working in finance work hard, and I did. I worked really hard and I worked long hours, but I'm working like 10 times as hard now as I ever did in that old job because it's utterly relentless. It's like no, no switch off time. As B said earlier, you do all the jobs. There's no, there's no escape from you know, taking out the rubbish and, and all that kind of stuff, but also the finance, the operations, the Instagram, the product development, although we share the jobs, there's just, you know, we're like at 500% all the time because we're doing five different people's jobs. But although some of my friends are like, you bit, you need to chill out a bit, mate, and <laughs> don't burn out and all that kind of stuff, I'm like, I'm loving it. I'm happy. I'm very happy every day working with this guy, another guy we've got on board, Chris, and the team we've developed, it's like... It's amazing, and we're doing something really cool with a purpose, and people are getting on board with it. So it's just like it's wicked. Yeah, it's been a it's been a crazy 
few months for you guys are absolutely popping up everywhere. So, like, Justin, maybe talk a bit about the first, I guess, is it, how long has Dapper been running? A year, nearly? Well, no. Nearly? No, we're near a year, really. Um, we started working together, was it end of September? Which oh. is bonkers, because end of September we were in a hotel um, with a little business centre back in my hometown in Farnborough. We used to kind of commute, well, I'd walk there, or Ollie would commute there. Um, long drive. Way. So we had, we did have a good friend there thing. coming all the way to see you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, well, I don't drive, so that's probably the reason I don't drive is because I don't want to do all that driving. Basically, <laughs> it's the best way to avoid it. Not have a license. <laughs> don't have a license. Um, but yeah, so we've we've gone from you know working in this kind of business centre, quite corporate, ironically, um, to now. You know, living in London and having all these different kind of outposts and locations, which is all thanks to Ollie, because he's smashed it with finding places to sell the product. Mm -hmm. It's all well and good having a product, but you need somewhere to sell it, obviously. Um, and we're learning more and more each, you know, as time goes by about the importance of location and context as well. So not just where you are. Footfall is irrelevant unless it's relevant, basically. Yeah. You know, there's no point. You have 10,000 people walk past you every day, but if nobody's interested in what you're doing, it's very difficult. Um, to kind of to operate there, but um, but yeah. So how long we've we been trained? Four months. So yeah, March. So that's yeah. So we, and we've got kind of four, usually selling ice cream in four different places at one time. Yeah. So I'm really Which interested to hear maybe from Ollie about how you went about convincing people that Dapper was a brand to get on board with because you guys have got you know absolute prime location in St Pancras Station. How do you go about? getting retailers and people to take a pun on a business they probably have never heard of. Yeah, it's been weird. We never actually, you know, things move really quickly in startup world, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, our original plan was to, well, it's just changing every day, really. Our original plan was to have a couple of mobile units and do festivals. And we have done quite a good number of festivals, but um, a lot of them were like, just wouldn't even reply to emails or phone calls because like, it's like, who are you? You know, they've been doing it for yeah. 10, 15 years. They've got their, their vendors that they go back to and have done a good job. So we realized pretty quickly that that wasn't going to be enough. Um, we got talking to Sourced Market, which is a St. Pancras place, through applying for one of the festivals that their parent company ran. And they were like, oh, what about this? And we thought, yeah, what, what a good place to be because we're trying to redefine ice cream here. We don't want to just sit in a bubble in Hackney and sell vegan ice cream to vegans. Let's try and get in front of everyday people and show them what we've got. Um, and that's exactly what we've done in St Pancras. It's, it's been amazing. We've got this big sign up saying redefining ice cream where we talk about um, you know, how the, the end of milk is, n is nigh. Uh, and even if people don't read it, so even if people don't buy our ice cream, they, a lot of people stop and look at it and read it, and it's getting into their heads gradually. Um, I realise I'm drifting off the question. Do, do you get a lot of people who come to you and say, "I've been walking past you, you know, for the last three weeks, and I'm just, I'm, I just can't wait to try it." You know, like I've, I've seen the branding. You've been chipping away at them with the kind of oh, the branding. Big time. Yeah, we've had people travel from far and wide. Like, it's normally vegans who say that kind of stuff, but we've had like we had this couple come down on the train from the East Midlands just to try Dapper. Like oh they wow. literally got into, <laughs> got into St Pancras or King's Cross, whichever one, sat there, ate a couple of our fat boy servings, loved it, did some Instagram, went home again. We were like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Down in London. <laughs> this is like, this is real now. This is getting, <laughs> getting a bit weird. 
Um, <laughs> but it's amazing. Like, yeah, we, we get a lot of the reaction we've had from non-vegans is is amazing. Like, everybody just says, oh, it's like we started off with like, oh, it's just like real ice cream, and and we're like, yeah, well, it, it is. We think if you if it looks like ice cream, if it tastes like like ice cream, it's ice cream, and we deliberately use the words ice cream in our marketing materials because we kind of wouldn't mind having a bit of a fight with someone about that if they said you're not allowed to call it ice cream <laughs> you know uh we're ready for that conversation to happen with all the com you know all the other stuff about uh discs instead of burgers and you know all that rubbish oh yeah that's it's it just shows an industry is under threat right that they want to kind of re redefine what we call our products. So yeah, it's just vested interests yeah. trying to keep people looking, or keep, keep people closing their eyes to, to where things are going. And when the popular vernacular has already moved on from that, people don't say almond drink, they say I want almond milk. Yeah. So like, it's just a load of rubbish and we're helping to encourage that, that trend away, away from historic. Yeah. I wanted to say bullshit, but am I allowed to say that? You can. <laughs> I'll say bullshit for you. <laughs> Yeah, the historical yeah. bullshit, but that, that is a lot of what we're, what we're about is, yeah, like Ollie said, not selling vegan ice cream to vegans. Um, I haven't got anything against vegans, obviously. Um, but, yeah, we think to do that, you need to... It's not good enough for it to just be vegan, you know, just be a vegan alternative of something. So our ice cream's thick, rich and creamy like a good ice cream should be. Um, it's sweet, it's indulgent... Lots of people can't tell the difference, or they tell us it's the best ice cream they've ever had, which is just amazing. Every time you hear it, it really is amazing. Um, but that's what we believe in. That's, that's how we believe it should be. Great. And so talking about the creative process of creating ice cream, how do you do it? What, what goes into making an, an ice cream that is essentially, it's a real British classic, you know, it's something we've all grown up with. What, what do you, how do you do it? How do you go about coming up with the whole concept and you know the product what what would someone need to do if they wanted to maybe not create a dapper but create a food brand what what kind of things do you have to sort out it's, it's a good it's a good place to start if, if you you're know starting you out if you're, if you're you're starting out now yeah. with no if, if no you know what you want to create yeah that's a good start um it's a lot of luck as well so the the, the first recipe that i ever tried and i was good, you know tell this story first recipe i ever tried because i wanted to do a an ice cream that wasn't didn't have any refined sugar in it. Mm -hmm. So the first recipe I tried was dates and cashews and water. You know, and it, it came out of the, of the machine. The first one came out of the machine, then it stopped coming out of the machine. Because <laughs> um, it was just reformed dates and cashews, basically. Yeah. I went to bed that night, almost cried myself to sleep, because I thought, I'm going to have to use refined sugar now. And I've been kind of anti-refined sugar, so what I always find interesting in the... Because you're, you're diabetic, right? Yes, yeah, which is nice. Is that, that, that fed into, I guess, your... It did originally, yeah. yeah. Um, but then in the end, it was like, do you know what, Justin? You just have to take it on the chin, mate. You know, you've got a, an expensive ice cream machine downstairs. You need to come up with a recipe. So, um, so yeah, so I, I kind of took it from the, almond, from the dates and the cashews. We like things to be really simple as well, so I try and keep... Yeah, the idea that we had might have to use two different types of nuts. Again, originally, I was like, oh, you know, I can't do that. It's not going to be perfect enough. It's not going to be simple enough. Um, took that one on the chin as well. Then it became almonds and cashews. And what I found is that almonds give it a richness. So you talk about, you know, ice cream is a British thing. What do you expect from an ice cream? You expect it to be rich. You expect it to be creamy and thick if it's a good quality ice cream, one that's not pumped full of air. 
so yeah, so the, the creaminess comes from the cashews, and then we've got real Madagascan vanilla in there as well. Um, so it, you know, it really is about creating the best of the best of the best ice cream. So it's not alternative. So here is a lot of pragmatism went into the creation of um, the product. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so Justin's very modest about this recipe that he's developed, which is amazing. Like he, he, he iterated it over many, um, many versions, uh, and we're still kind of changing it and tweaking it today. But in terms of the creative process, the thing that's amazed me about how he approaches stuff, which is a kind of a, I think is a bit of a millennial thing. I'm, a, I'm 10 years older than Justin, so I'm slightly of a different ilk. Um, like in my, in my world, you learn stuff and then you put your learning into practice, but Justin's approach is to just do it. And that's what he did with this recipe. Like that's what he does with other stuff as well. <laughs> like he's built a load of stuff out of wood for our, our um, shops and, <laughs> and our trailer. He's got no experience whatsoever, but he just takes it on. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you just make it up as you go along, but no, you're right. It's just, just jump in and, and you know, suck it and see, right? You can sit at the end of the swimming pool all afternoon wondering what it's like to swim, or you can just get in the fucking swimming pool and learn. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's enough time to do that. So, yeah. I yeah, I mean, I, like I said, there's a lot of luck in the recipe development, I would say. Okay, so... But that's the general... You've had a bit of luck. So what, what big challenges have you guys have to overcome in the first sort of six months? And what have, what have been the big roadblocks you've faced? Uh, roadblocks? Um, we're waiting for... So I've listened to a lot of podcasts and stuff about entrepreneurial stuff. What ones? Um, How I Built This is a really good yeah, one. Yeah, it's a great one, yeah. yeah with Guy Raz. Guy Raz, um, I'm Guy Raz. Yeah. <laughs> so that's been good. And you hear, you listen to all those people saying there's a lot of things that keep coming up. And before I was doing this, I was like, um, you know, you just hear the same things again and again. Maybe it's all just cliche. But then when you're actually in, in the boat, you realise the reason cliches exist or whatever is because they just keep happening. And we've, we've experienced all the things that these people talk about. What we haven't had yet is like an existential crisis. Um, they all seem to talk about that. They're like, oh, there was this one day when, you know, we uh, realised there was glass in all of our cakes and we nearly killed someone or whatever. Like, and, and that nearly brought the business to its knees. We, we haven't had that yet. And I'm like, part of me in the back of my mind is always worrying that we're going to have that. And Justin's like, don't manifest it. Don't manifest it. <laughs> I, th I, think you, I think you need to have that story to get on that podcast. Yeah, exactly. But like, uh, when did it all go really wrong? You, know, yeah. you can come on. It's all right. We've certainly had some hilariously sort of schoolboy errors that we've done, like trying to move the trailer uh, in Shoreditch one night with, with Lauren, who's a kind of little, a, a nice young girl, like trying to push the trailer like she was world's strongest man and then getting these drunk people to help us like things like that in startup it's just startup land you you, f you find a problem you you solve it we've had some financial uh difficulties because everything it's a it's a justin quote everything costs twice as much and takes twice as long as you as you think it's going to um so when it was raining and heavily in june like the wettest june on record and we were in all these places not really selling very much ice cream that was challenging. I did have some stresses on that, but on the whole, we've we've really outdone our own expectations. You know, we've got four locations open right now in London. Um, Justin and I are here. Chris uh, is doing yoga. The, nice. the third member of the management team. So we've managed to build this thing, which is like 
everyone loves, you know, it's sustaining itself. Um, and we've got a really good team of people that can run it without us, which is pretty amazing. So do you, do you guys see it as a seasonal business then, my ice cream? Um, we did. So we see soft serve ice cream, which is what we're doing at the moment as a seasonal business. Um, we don't want to be trying to sell soft serve outside in December with people wearing coats and scarves and sh shivering. That just doesn't work. Um, so, yes. Uh, but what we've seen with our thing, at, we're doing a, a, a partnership with Backyard Cinema in Camden at the moment, yep. which is an interesting one to talk about, actually, because... Sorry, I'm getting off topic again. Um, I'd love to hear about it. Good. <laughs> Um, we we got a partnership with them. We are doing soft serve right in the cinema. It's like an upgraded cinema experience. No one cares about veganism. It's not. It's nothing to do with veganism whatsoever. And we're selling between 25 and 45 percent of the people that walk in that cinema and ice cream, wow. um, which is insane. Um, so, you know that kind of thing. I don't know how. I don't know. Let's say five percent of them are vegans. So that other 35 or 40% of people who are trying our ice cream are going away, getting it in their head like, oh, dairy-free ice cream or whatever you want to call it. Vegan ice cream, dairy-free, plant-based. We don't push any particular description of it. We yeah. just say it's made from almonds and cashews and see if you like it. Uh, but that's going really well. So you see a development of partnerships with people like Backyard Cinema and yeah. other sort of indoor exactly. experiences as a way you can kind of keep trading throughout the year and obviously do your big business sort of the sit by yeah. the two months of the summer. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, we're talking to a few places. So Backyard being one of them, restaurants, other venues about having indoor options all year round. But what Justin's also working on now, which I'm really excited about, is a version of our product that's going to go into tubs. Great. Um, originally, we weren't. that wasn't on the agenda. But as I said before, the agenda changes almost on a daily basis. And we've had so many people say, where can I buy this? Some people say, where can I sell this in my own shop? Um, so we've basically just reacted to the constant feedback of, of we want this product on the shelves. Um, yeah. So that's going to be the next thing on our agenda. That sounds really interesting. I, um, it'd be really interesting to talk about branding actually now. And there's obviously, there you've got the soft serve and then you've got this new product that hopefully is going to go into tubs. So the branding that you guys have at DAP is really strong. How did you go about creating that brand? And you know what? how did you sort of put the values that you and Ollie have into that brand? And and then how are you going to kind of keep the brands separate as, as the business evolves and, you know, you have a product-based business as well? And Because obviously a soft serve and whatever is going to go into this tub are going to be slightly different. So just thoughts on branding and how you went about developing what you have. Yeah, so it's an interesting one because I think, again, like, a, you know, maybe quite a few things that I've already spoken about here you know, with the sugar and, and, you know, using two different types of nuts and stuff like that. Basically, when I, when I used to look at ice cream in tubs, I would just kind of see a dead product on a shelf. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt the same way about lots of different products. This year, after seeing, I suppose after feeling, feeling the kind of marketing experience from the soft serve ice cream, we've then realized that actually soft serve ice cream is great for that. It's great for marketing the brand. The brand doesn't have to just be soft serve ice cream. Ice cream, it turns out in the UK, a lot of people don't even know what soft serve is anyway. So you call it ice cream and everybody knows what ice cream is. So yeah, I mean the idea now, the loose, vague plan, which we've only put in, into place recently, because again, the, you know, the, the agenda changes that quickly, but the loose plan now is to work on a tubbed ice cream product um, that will eventually form the backbone of the business. 
And then the soft serve ice cream is something that we do each summer. And we do in these locations with these partnerships like Backyard. And that actually serves as marketing. So all of a sudden, you've got a backbone of the business. You've got the marketing, which is actually the soft serve ice cream, where you can speak to people. You can provide an experience. You can provide some theater. That's really important for both Ollie and I in the brand. Is this theater. It's the fun. Uh, it's an indulgence. We want to be more involved in the music side of stuff as well. Um, the kind of brands we look up to would be, you know, like the likes of Red Bull. You know, so yeah. they sell a product. It's not for me personally, but a lot of people <laughs> not drink for anyone, mate. No, a lot of people <laughs> drink that stuff. Yeah. But then they've got the events that they wrap around it. They've got the yeah. publishing house. They've got all these other little bits and pieces that come off the brand. And I think Red Bull do that really well. Oatly, they're not a dead product on a shelf. You know, so I had a big kind of wake up call this year when I was like, hang on a sec. You know, that, that thought that I've got, that idea is not actually valid. It's complete nonsense because you've got the likes of Red Bull, you've got the likes of Oatly. Um, so what I'm hearing is that you're trying to build an experience around the brand. You're not saying it's a, a product. You're saying Dapper is a sort of a lifestyle experience. And then, you know, the soft serve is just a product that that lifestyle experience provides you with. Yeah, yeah exactly that. Um, and that's really important. What I've also learned this year is that it's no good just being airy-fairy with the brand. Because you can, you can talk about brands, you can go into the archetypes, you can go into psychology, and I love all that yeah. stuff. But to be honest, it's just you know, straight over your head a lot of the time. Uh, so it's really important to have a brand that's interesting, a brand that provides an experience and a feeling, a sensation that's kind of locked in and tapped into the flow. So the flow at the moment is veganism, it's plant-based eating, people are becoming more conscious of what they do in their lives, what they eat, how they spend their time. So we're tapping into that naturally. Um, but you also have to have something that's going to stand the test of time. So a really good quality product, basically. So you need something that's super tangible, you can hold in your hand, and then something else which is an idea that you wrap around that product, if you like. Okay. So that would be my two cents, probably more like $2 on, on branding. And if someone here wants to create a food, a food brand, where would where'd you send them to sort of get, get the advice and get some get going you know was there any designers you recommend or people you work with um i mean we we've i've actually done most of the design so um i don't know who i'd recommend that you go to justin but I, yeah <laughs> just come and talk to me after <laughs> no um no i think what's what's really important is that you start off with an idea and i've just spoken about what's tangible and what's not but start off with the idea of the experience that you want to create or the feeling that you want to give people. We want people to have a good time. We want them to have fun, um, which is why we're, you know, it's why we're doing ice cream, basically. Right. Um. So one thing on the brand, I mean, it is all Justin, but we've, we've kind of created something that is a combination of our personalities in a, in a strange way. Like what you see with Dapper is just us. And I think the authenticity of that shines through to people when they when they come to our trailer or shop or whatever, you know, we don't call people Sarah Madden, we call them mate, which is how we talk to people. Um, so I think the authenticity of, of your brand will shine through to people if it is authentic. So don't, don't build something that doesn't reflect you. Just make sure, especially if you're, you know, sole trader or doing a partnership, make sure it's, it's authentic and the rest will follow. No, I agree. Um, in terms of working together, it's, it's obviously really important to have a co-founder. And businesses that have co-founders are more attractive to investors and they, they have a better chance of, of surviving the first couple of years of trading. So how do you guys work out how, who, who's going to do what? 
And how do you go about making decisions when there's two two people, you know, running a show? Like who how do you kind of come to come to a agreed vision and make that happen? We've been like a you know, you you pour the water and you see where it goes, you know, like it's been a bit like that. Originally I was the uh I was designated the COO or whatever, and then we realized that I wasn't really particularly good or interested in, in operations. I was the one who was sort of talking to people, building relationships, just chat, chat all, all the time. So I became the, I don't know, we don't really have a name for it. Uh, what we've settled on <laughs> in terms of the names is Justin is a creative director and I'm the director of everything else. So that's, <laughs> that's, how we, that's how we found our roles in the business. Um, we, we make all decisions collectively, really. Um, you know, but there's quite a natural uh, split of, of jobs because Justin's really creative and he's really good at building stuff and making stuff. He's also quite a visionary person. I thought I was a visionary person, but actually I've got like, I look about five days forward and he looks five years forward. So um, we just found our, our natural jobs that we're good at and our rhythm of working together. And we are, it's a really good fit, our skills. And we brought Chris on, who's like the third member of the management team, who's a technical guy. Um, so he's just filled in a lot of the gaps that we, that we didn't realize we had until he showed up. Helps that we're in love with each other as well. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, Me and Judy find that as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> makes it a lot easier. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting to see, because, yeah, Ollie, you know, now does, Ollie's like sales guru, basically, but not your, not your nasty traditional sales, you know, because Ollie's a people person, so that's just happened, but we didn't, I didn't expect that from the start, I don't think you did really, because it was, yeah, it was like, Ollie was going to do the, the operations side and all this kind of thing, but it, you, you just have to suck it and see, you just see where you go, you again, just jump in, jump into the chaos, see where it leads you. Uh, if you try and plan too much up front, that's really important as well, but if you try and plan too much up front for, for who's going to do what, and then unless you have the conversation, when you're doing stuff you don't want to do, unless you have that conversation, then you're, everybody's doing what they don't want to do. And then you've got demotivation, and, and that's real. You know, in a startup yeah. where it's, like Ollie's saying, it's a grind sometimes. It's, there's a lot going on. It's no sleep, no life, you know, whatever. Um, it's really important that you stay motivated so that you're you know, doing what you want to do. But that's really hard to pull off in a startup. Yeah. Um, yeah, we are able to be here today, which is amazing. But I think we've worked really hard to get to that point already. And I think that's really important as well. If you want to build a business that's going to be stable, it's a little bit my own experience talking here because you know, the last two that I had flopped or they, they didn't work or they ended they after summer. <laughs> yeah, they went pop. They were just... <laughs> Like a big expensive summer party, basically. <laughs> Two summers on the trot. And, and one thing I would say to Ollie and, and Chris and everybody is like, you know, this is real. Let's remember there is something's going to happen after summer. And that's basically the sun goes away um, even more than it already is. Um, but, yeah, so we're, we're growing into our roles. We're still learning as well. Nobody's... It's a great thing about a startup is that you're, you get to write the rules. You, there's no job description until you've written it for yourself. And you have to... Do the work. You start going. I wish I had a job description. That'd help. <laughs> it does help, ironically. Like it, it is really important for for, yeah. for everybody to know what they're doing. I think um, to try and keep the calm. Yeah, because otherwise you just do all the good jobs and you leave all the 
VAT, paying VAT and all the rubbish ones. That's to, the like, plan. <laughs> for someone else to do. <laughs> to get a letter from HMRC. <laughs> um, so plant-based food landscape is coming super competitive. Like So small brands like Chandra brands like Dapper, how are you guys going to stay ahead of the competition? How do you see it playing out over the next few years? We, we, uh, there's this book called Business for Punks, which we both love. It's kind of our Bible, written by the guy who founded Brewdog. Yeah, I've read it. It's a great book. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of those thing, one of the things he talks about is, you know, embrace embrace competition or embrace people copying you. Um, we keep thinking there's going to be some other vegan soft serve product out there soon, but we don't e we don't spend any time worrying about it or thinking about that. Um, it's weird that there's no, we think it's weird that there's no other people doing what we're doing because the reactions we're getting from people on the product side are so amazing. We're just like, well, someone's going to copy us soon, surely. Uh, but it hasn't happened yet. Maybe it'll happen next year. I think we're just really um, focusing on growing, um, keep doing what we do, keep innovating, and just being, being really good at what we do and, and not really trying to worry about other people yeah i think that's uh probably the best space to be right because you're going to stay in the visionary space and be able to keep creating new innovations and stay ahead of anyone copying you they're already two years behind so that's a good good way to look at it any thoughts on this i was just going to add two cents not two dollars on that one that yeah if you're thinking about the competition naturally you're taking the focus away from what you're supposed to be doing so if you think about the competition you're wasting your time you should really actually be asking yourself what you know what am i playing at how have i got enough time to think about the competition because it means that you're diverting that time away from your own brand your own business and that is a little bit crazy cool so uh, you spoke about growth ollie um what fundraising plans do you have for for dapper because you know a lot of people here who might be running the business um they want to get started. How do you how do you go about doing that? And how what are your guys' plans to keep Dapper growing? Yeah, we've already uh, we've tried to do everything different to how everyone else does it. So people say, oh, when are you going to do a this round, a Series A, and all that kind of stuff? And I come from a finance background, yeah. so I, I know about all that stuff. And our plan is to keep uh, the business wholly ours from an equity perspective for absolutely as long as we can. Um, you know, there's no point in bringing investors in in the early days when you haven't proven anything. Um, we have proven something now. You know, we're going to be profitable in our first year, which is, I think, quite unusual for startups, especially food startups. So we're pretty happy with that. Um, to, in order to deliver our pretty ambitious growth plans for next year, we are going to need some investment. Um, I haven't done all the spreadsheets yet, but I've got it in my head, and I've kind of got a rough number, and I'm like, I'm not going to find that just in the back of the sofa. Um, <laughs> so our, our plan is to try and find uh, people who, I don't want to go to big like venture capitalists and, and that kind of stuff. I've, I want to go to people who believe in what we're doing, who believe in us, and we'll get on board in, a, in an unconventional way, um, put some money to work in, in, yeah, not in the traditional way. That's all, that's all I can really say about it at the moment. But we've had so many people express interest in, in investing that we're not worried about funding. I think we're living in a world of, of fairly available funding. Um, 
very, very, very available funding, but we just don't want to go and say, okay, now we own 20% of our business instead of, instead of 100. Yeah, it's important to get the right people on board, right? And say, yeah. looking for people to add value in other ways that aren't just, just the money. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be nice. We're, we're pretty sort of single-minded in our approach. Um, you know, we've had a lot of people say, you can't do it like that. And we just sort of nod and smile politely and then go and do it like that anyway. And it's worked out fairly well. Um, but we are still very small. You know, we're, yeah. we're just a, a London thing and we're, we're trading out of kind of North and East London. We're not sort of too arrogant to think that we're, we're not going to need some help soon. Uh, so it's just making sure you get the help from the right kind of people who really believe in what you're doing and have this, a shared vision for the business. Yeah, I, gu I guess the challenge actually with Dapper, especially on the kind of the way you're operating at the moment with the soft serve, it's very people-led and it's very service-led. It's you know it's the whole experience, right? If you guys chat to them and just like, so it's hard to replicate that. So it's gonna, uh, I guess, training and development for you guys is gonna be like something. It's a big challenge. Exciting, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you got. Well, I was going to say that that's you know part of the reason why we're now looking at you know tubbed option. Um, at the end of the day, we've got a mission. That mission is to redefine ice cream. We're not on a mission to work ourselves to death. So, what's the most effective way that we can complete our mission? You know, if that means we go tubbed and then we roll out soft serve each year and we make a big scene and we make a splash and we have a load of fun doing it, I mean, I'm content. With, I think we're both pretty content with that. Yeah. You know, we all like the idea of that. Um, also, it means that the, the soft serve ice cream has got more of a kind of, you know, it feels a little bit more exclusive. If something's available all the time, it can lose its kind of specialness. So, um, so yeah, again, I think just, just listening and just kind of going with the flow, you pick these things up and then your business will, will drive itself towards that, um, that path. Yeah, that sounds great. Just, just one thing on the training point. Um, talking about sort of unconventional approaches we haven't interviewed anyone you know we've got 15 or so people working on our team now and they're all they're all amazing they're all very different uh we haven't we've recruited most of them through instagram uh it's just like if you if you give off a certain vibe or energy and just see what comes back see see the, the enthusiasm that comes back that's the kind of people we've found to work for us and yeah, we've, we've trained them on the job. We haven't done anything too formal, but we've just sort of let them, we try and let everyone be good at what they're good at. So some people are great at talking to customers and going out and offering ice cream samples. Other people just want to kind of grind away and pull the ice cream and put the toppings on, all that kind of stuff. So our approach, in, in the same way as we talked about what the jobs we do, we just try and let everyone flourish in the things that they're good at rather than trying to put square pegs in round holes and make people less bad at the things they don't enjoy. Giving people the freedom to grow into what they, they feel comes exactly, naturally. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a nice way to approach it. So um, just to wrap up, I'd love to hear three tips for, from both of you for people who want to create their own food business. So just quickly. Three tips. Um, sleep is probably my biggest tip to anybody. Um, it's a little bit facetious, but no, I mean, no, but it is actually real. Look after yourself. You know, don't you really do need to look after yourself. Again, this is only my experience. I've burnt out more than twice now, and it's not pretty. Depression's not fun. You know, take it seriously. Um, amongst all the fun, 
take it seriously. It's something something to take seriously. Um, other tips? Find a good co-founder. Find a good co-founder. <laughs> there we go. Um, no, but that's okay. That is a great one. Yeah, I, there's no way I could do this on my own. There's absolutely no way. Um, you know, I like to mess around with recipes and and do the creative stuff, but yeah, there's no way I could do this on my own. So, cheers, mate. Uh, it's a sacrifice thing. Like, I've um, <laughs> I've sacrificed basically everything. My there's this very funny YouTube clip uh, about a, a Maltese potato farmer talking about how much he loves potatoes, and at one point he just says, "My life is potato," and that's become a bit of a catchphrase for us because <laughs> my life really is ice cream at the moment, um, and I'm perfectly happy for that to be the case, as I described earlier. I'm sure that won't. I hope that won't be the case forever. Uh, but <laughs> you are ice cream. <laughs> yeah, I I literally dream about it. Um, but yeah, you do have to make some sacrifices. I I say don't don't go in if you want to start a business and really make a success of it quickly. Just no half measures. You talk. You hear people doing sort of little side projects while they're doing their nine to five job. Maybe that works for some people, but there's no way that that would have worked for us. We were like, right, if we're doing this, we're either gonna you know, quit our jobs and go for it, or, or we're not. We didn't have jobs at the time, anyway. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that's irrelevant. Um, but yeah, it's it's like full full commitment, no yeah. half measures. Just go for it. Uh, I agree. All right, lads, that's great. Um, I think we're going to do a Q and A now. So pop up your hand. I'm going to give you a microphone. Um, when I was listening to that, are you your retail units? Are they there seven days a week and? Um, uh, the, qu the big question is, um, is repeat business a lot of what you're about? Yeah, it really is. Um, we've seen a gradual uh, increase in the popularity of our product over the over the summer since we launched in April, which was in Kings Cross in St Pancras. Um, we have uh, stats on our on our um, point of sale system, which tells you percentage of repeat business, and that's just gradually gone up and up and up. It's just people using the same credit card. That's how they track it. Um, so that's been amazing. We've only y we've we've dabbled with a uh, like a f what do you call it smartphone based loyalty scheme, which didn't really work for us. We've now finally launched just traditional loyalty cards, which people love. Just get a little ice cream stamp on your on your card and get your sixth one free. Um, but yeah, we've we've we're seven days a week. Well, we're seven days a week in two places at the moment. Six days a week in in one, and then we're two days a week in our fourth location, just the weekends. But We've seen a real gradual pickup over the summer as people, as word of mouth travels really fast in London, especially in the in the vegan community. We've had amazing, like, uh, you know, we we just hear things about people talking about our ice cream in places that they shouldn't be. Like, I we met this guy f from Hertfordshire. He's like, oh yeah, my all my all the lads in my gym, all the all the girls and lads in my gym are talking about Dapper, and it's like, in Hertfordshire. Um, so yeah, we we just it's been a gradual word of mouth thing. We haven't done any real marketing, have we? Just sort of the product is the marketing. One more question. That's okay, cool. Um, the 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 vegan thing. Cause I, I ask because I'm I'm thinking about that my for myself. Do you do you run that? I can't think of a better word. Run that down people's throats, or do you? Because you you said that you didn't. You're more casual about it. The complete opposite of that. Uh, what I'll let Justin speak, but basically what B said earlier. You know, if you um, 
if you try and tell people what to do, their instinctive reaction is to do the complete opposite. So we're kind of leading by example, both in ourselves and our product. And if people like it, which they do, great. If they don't, also great. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you basically said it. But yeah, we do the complete polar opposite and we do that on purpose because we're not... You, I mean, you have to be careful with this because we are a niche business at the moment. If you want to talk about it in a tangible fashion, we're a niche business. Um, but there is this massive potential and that's where we're looking to go. We're not interested in selling vegan ice cream to vegans. Um, but the vegan community... You know, all of our friends around in the community um, are really important. You know, anytime you have a niche, you have the those early adopters, right? And they're they're the ones that will spread the message. They'll go and tell everybody. They'll venture from, you know, who knows where to come and try the ice cream um, or whatever else it is. They're passionate. They're intrinsically motivated. Um, so it's really important that you tap into that, but also have that longer longer term vision. Or you know, you're looking past it being a niche because otherwise you may just have a niche business and then that's all you've got. But we're on a mission to redefine ice cream. We're ridiculously ambitious. Um, yeah, so for us, it's important to think about what's outside of that vegan niche. Uh, and the fact is, I say it's a fact, I'm not sure if it is, but there are, you know, almost everybody's lactose intolerant, right? So, e and even if they're not kind of certified lactose intolerant, they certainly shouldn't be drinking cow's milk. So that's our opportunity. You know, we, we don't believe there should be milk in ice cream, basically, for anybody. Hello. Uh, <laughs> you have mentioned how, how important it is to find a good uh, co-partner for your business. And you've also said that uh, before you've had two other projects which weren't successful. I was just wondering whether those projects you also run with someone or whether you try to do those uh, yourself and maybe what would be your tip for finding the right partner for, for your project? Interesting question. Um, very good question. So the first, the first thing I ever did, I was completely head in the clouds and I think I just thought I could do it on my own. And I had a few people around me that were incredibly helpful. Um, at the time I was probably blind to how helpful they were towards the end of that project, which is end of 2017, I definitely realized that I can't do this on my own. I don't want to do it on my own. The idea of being, you know, independent had just become a complete joke to me, to be honest. You know, you look around and, and we're also kind of well interconnected um, or interdependent, right? So you need to be strong on your own, but then surround yourself with other strong people and that's, that's how you can create something. Um, it's a really nice quote um, by a guy that I met who, and it was, what was it? To go, to go fast, go alone. To go far, go together. And that really, you know, struck a, a nerve with me, um, or a chord, sorry. Um, but yeah, and then, so that kind of fizzled out, that one. And I, I had a kind of quasi-partnership. I had somebody that I worked with very closely, but we weren't officially partners in the business. Um, that then fizzled out. Um, it's worth noting that I'm quite hard to work with, so it's, a lot my, it's my fault, basically, it's my problem. Uh, and then last year, I had a partnership with two guys. They were great, great people, and we really got on, and it was really lovely to begin with. Um, but then there were some kind of early warning signs, really, of how the relationship or the partnership wasn't, wasn't going to work, and that's basically what happened. You know, Towards the end of the year, it just fell apart completely. I had two partners. I wasn't even speaking to one of them. They were a husband, husband and wife team, so that made things interesting. Um, 
but yeah, and then it just completely fizzled out altogether. And there was a real breakdown and or, or just lack of communication. And that's something that Ollie and I are really hot on, and we realised that from the from the get go. We need to communicate with each other, be completely honest. Um, might not even always be about the business; it might be about something else. But as long as there's some honesty there, you've you've got a relationship. Um, and that would that you know that's the most important thing I'd say is that communication really. Thank you. He talks about a relationship, but it is like a relationship. You know, we we talk about our emotions. We if one's one of us is a bit down, the other one will pat him on the back, and and you know, we it really is a, a we you know we spent until recently where we've been spread a bit thin. You know, there was a period from September to April where we basically spent every day together. Um, and that's a lot of time to spend with someone, you know. So you have to be, you have to be communicative, like you said, and and really understanding the other person's needs. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true, isn't it? <laughs> so yeah, there you go. Okay, so you you mentioned that uh, that you'd like to go from niche to more mainstream. Would you ever? do what, um, for example, Alpro has done, um, I think Danone has, a, which is a, a large uh, dairy uh, company, has, has bought out um, Alpro. W would you ever do anything like that? What, mergers and acquisitions kind of thing? Buy, buy another company? Uh, yeah. Uh, whew, that's... Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. We'll let them buy us out? Yes. yes. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, a lot of people ask us, uh, what are your exit plans? because I come from that financial background, and the answer is we don't have any exit plans. We're not here to make a business, make some profit, sell it to a company, and go and sit on a beach. We want to be there for the long haul. We want to basically build a you know, vegan Ben & Jerry's 2.0, like go global. Like We don't have this sort of... Uh, yeah, we don't want anyone buying us and telling us what to do. So, you know, that's the plan. Like I said before things change quickly in the in the in this world we're in but right now we're very single-minded on what we want to achieve and how we want to go about it and we don't really want anyone telling us how to do it right yeah well i think you know one of the big reasons for both of us for doing this is that we get to do what we want to do and not be told what to do so yeah you know, as Ollie said, at the moment we're very single-minded in that there's absolutely no way that we would sell to anybody, certainly not a dairy company or a company that aren't aligned with us ethically. Um, who knows what happens in the future, but that's exactly how it is right now. We're, we're not doing this for money. You know, we're not here for, to earn some money. There are much easier ways to make money. Um, this is not one of them. Um, so there really has to be something else behind it. And actually, one of the top, one of the three tips I was going to give in the end, which ironically is three things in one, but it's basically the answer to the question of why are you in business or why are you doing what you do? And it's make money, have fun, and change the world or do something that changes the world, your world, you know, our world, whoever's world, uh, something with a bit of purpose, basically. Um, the result of kind of aiming for all of those things is that you probably will make some money. Um, if you go in the other way around, then you, you're going to get mixed up. And if somebody comes along and waves that golden kind of carrot, they dangle that carrot around, you're probably going to bite it. Um, and then who knows what happens after that. You know, the, f the fact that Alpro are owned by who they're owned by doesn't really sit right with me, to be honest. Uh, not even the fact that they're owned by that company, but the fact that most people don't know. You know, I don't like that. I think that's manipulation. But yeah.
on the old advice thing. It's a Justin quote, actually, but I really like... I often quote Justin, which is weird. Um, <laughs> one of his things he said a lot is, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And it's really not like this This whole uh, trying to set up a business thing, trying to make money, trying to do something you believe in. It's not easy at all, but the rewards when you manage to pull something off are really, really palpable and, and special. So... Um, yeah, it doesn't seem like it's going to get easier anytime soon, but you know, keep grinding away, and you know, great things will happen. Thank you. Next, Damien Clarkson interviews sustainable fashion advocates Bell and Alice, who talk about how they are boycotting fashion and why you should too. So let's let's start. At the beginning, kind of, where did your um, interest in fashion come from for both of you? And um, when did it? When did your attitudes towards change, uh, fashion start to change and shift? Um, I'll go first, since I'm holding the microphone. That's working. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Um, oh, yeah, speaking to it properly. Yeah. Ah, there we go. <laughs> okay, lovely. Um, so I have been shopping secondhand clothes since I was a teenager. Um, I think that was my kind of... Uh, first foray into what's now kind of considered something really sustainable um, and I've always shopped that way I think everything I'm wearing apart from the shoes now is secondhand um, it's my kind of default go-to way to shop partly because I don't like to uh, I like the chaos of a secondhand shop I like the chaos of not quite knowing what you're going to find and looking for something exciting I know that terrifies a lot of people um, and then I just yeah, I kind of accidentally became a stylist. Um, a friend of mine got signed to a record label and I went to go and style her because I was a f doing a photography degree and I styled her for a load of stuff. And so I got into styling because what of... What artist was it? Um, uh, I can't say. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, she's, uh, she's no longer performing. Um, but it got me really interested in styling and uh, creative direction. Um, but I never got into it because of love, like an obsession with fashion. I got into it because of storytelling and narrative. And so when I um, sort of about six years later woke up and realized I was actually working in the fashion industry and I was really and advertising and I was kind of deep into um, a lot of kind of uh, dealing with a lot of waste and dealing with a lot of uh, overconsumption and just seeing the kind of um, the lack of care for I felt a lack of care for the clothing and the way that it was being produced and it was all about artifice and kind of like the, the final end product rather than uh, the people and the environment um, and I kind of wondered what on earth I was doing and at the same sort of similar time I discovered sustainable fashion and I realized that you can actually make clothes in a really ethical way you can make things that um, really consider the people uh, behind the production um, and you can you know consume or well this is an interesting one we'll talk about this in a bit but consume. Um, <laughs> yeah consume I, it's a horrible word like <laughs> I consume food I don't want to consume clothes like we you know it's just strange concept um but yeah, I discovered, long story short, I discovered a way to enjoy clothing and telling stories with clothes that matched my personal ethics. Great. 
something that people don't know about me, actually, and I, I don't think even you know about me, um, is that I actually started off as an environmental journalist. I edited, yeah, oh, <laughs> I edited an environmental directory. Um, and I was, I sort of dropped into fashion quite accidentally when Metro uh, was started up and they were looking for a shopping editor and it was quite clear after a while that I should be the fashion editor because I had an interest in it. It is a fantastically exciting world, isn't it? It's full of beautiful things, amazing people, incredible creativity. So I was really living uh, fashion for a long time. I got to go to all the shows and sit on the front row and meet celebrities. But it was also jarring. While I was at Metro, I was trying to cover as much environmental fashion as possible, and there wasn't very much there. It was 1999, 2000, early 2000, there wasn't a lot. But I got, you know, I did my thing, and I was covering Primark and Boohoo, but I was feeling very uncomfortable. And as time went on, I think I approached the whole job with a lot of unease. Um, there was a lot of display, a lot of um, how do you look, what do you say, who do you know? That's a very unpleasant side of fashion, which I don't enjoy at all. Um, at the same time, there was a lot of beautiful creativity. Um, but this sense of unease just kept growing. I, I knew, you know, I would go to places and I'd go, I'd, I don't think I should be here. I don't really care about the display so much. I love the craft. The display doesn't matter to me. Rana Plaza fell in 2013. And I was not the only fashion. Uh, can I just, just uh, everyone knows Rana Plaza, yeah? When Rana Plaza fell, it really was, for anyone in the fashion industry who was uneasy, like me, it was a key moment when we realized that a lot of the brands that we were writing about and displaying on the pa our pages was contributing to terrible lives and appalling deaths that were needless. And I think at that point, I stepped away and I quit my job. And I remember people saying to me, you've just given up the best job in the world. You know, this is the job where people were flying me to Paris to interview Karl Lagerfeld. But it was not possible for me to keep going on and writing about these brands. Um, I knew sustainable labels were out there. They were stronger than they were when I started in the 2000s. Um, but it is a market that's growing and growing and growing. Now, Alice and I will talk to, uh, to, talk to you about yet another development in our beliefs about sustainable fashion and what it means, because we are both part of the Extinction Rebellion boycott fashion group. And when we say boycott fashion, we really mean all new clothing and all new textiles. We don't just mean boycott fast fashion, because people say, you mean boycott fast fashion, don't you? And we go, no, we mean boycott all new fashion. And we can talk a little bit about that later. It's a big ask, but we got there with an awakening, if you like. Um, I'll pass it back. So it's <laughs> been a big journey. <laughs> For you, and uh, yeah, I guess like it's been a real awakening of sustainability and I guess alternatives in fashion, both in material and people looking more deeply into where their clothes are made. And I think in the wake of Rana Plaza, like that really, um, that has taken place. So I, I guess I kind of know the answer to this really. You've got people like H&M. ASOS, you know, um, talking about doing sustainable clothing lines. You've got um, New Look have launched a vegan fashion range recently. Like, um, do you just see this as green greenwashing? Or do you think there's any sincerity in the um, the attempts by these companies to kind of, I guess, be more conscious about what they're doing or, cl or claim to be? Um, I'll go first, seeing as I'm holding the microphone. Um, I think. Uh, yes and no. So I think you're kind of either damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you look at what H&M are doing, 
um, on one hand, it's really positive because they're putting sustainable initiatives into place. Um, on the other hand, I just can't see past it being a massive amount of greenwashing because they still they made a, a big um, uh, song and dance about a commitment to pay all of their workers fairly by, no by November 2018 in all the factories across the supply chain, they still haven't managed to do that, and it, it hasn't been met. Um, the Clean Clothes campaign are constant, uh, currently chasing them on this, um, but they seem to have kind of like dropped that and moved away from it and just produced another collection made out of Pinatex to kind of uh, rather like a smokescreen, and I've kind of noticed since they've started talking about sustainability, when one initiative doesn't quite go their way, they uh, drop another one and kind of you know draw your attention over here. Um, smoke, but smoke and mirrors almost. It's smoke yeah. and mirrors, but at the same time, look at Topshop, they're not doing anything. And um, I, you know, heard apparently Philip Green, when H&M started talking about sustainability, he was said to them, you know, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. You are not going to pull this off. Everybody is going to see through this and, you know, essentially kind of call it out for what it is. Um, and, but at the same time, we have to give them a chance but personally, the problem for me is uh, it's it's the system's broken. It is you you cannot have sustainable fast fashion. Like sustainable fashion is enough of a, a you know a oxymoron as it is anyway, because fashion depends on newness and the next season and a constant kind of like turnover of ideas and products. So sustainable fashion itself is is a bit of a sort of joke. But fast sustainable fashion is not possible. We are running out of the planetary resources. Put really simply, we have more, we've got enough clothes already made. We've got more clothes made existing now to utilize than we have time left to sort out uh, the climate emergency we're in. So sustainable H&M fast fashion is um, is not where it's at. It's, 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 we, no, <laughs> no. So I remember meeting the sustainability officer from H&M, and I'm not going to say that she was not an extremely nice person <laughs> who cared deeply about the issues, okay? She was a lovely person. And some of the, I mean, some of these come from the right places. The trouble is they're working within systems where they have these massive profit-making boats, ships, to turn. And so the fact that they haven't managed to pay all their workers a fair wage doesn't surprise me because it's pretty much much more complex than you and I would ever believe to put this in place. So I believe, and I will give them the benefit of the doubt, uh, that some of these initiatives come from really good intentions. When you slip into the Extinction Rebellion mode, it's the system that's at fault, and we need system change. And so the good intentions are not enough, and these we do not have time for incremental changes. This is a conversation that we had. We cannot change slowly now. Ten years ago, this would have been possible. But if anyone has read any of the UN reports or heard anything on the news, I mean, even as recently as two days ago, they're saying, the UN is saying, that we need to all go plant-based, hello, revolution. You know, we are in a state of emergency. Now, again, that took me a long time to take on board, and I was arguing, you know, Alice and I have spent quite a long time on the phone going, but, you know, but, but they're trying, but, you know, sustainable fashion labels, we personally love some of what they're doing, but we're in a state of crisis. It's really hard to take that on board. And even as I say it, I don't really get the full implications of that. So yes, I'm really glad that big, big companies are trying. And I'm glad that consumers are pushing them. 
but in the current state that the planet is in, it's not enough. It'd be interesting to talk a bit about Extinction Rebellion and uh, the boycott fashion, not just fast fashion, fashion. Um, so how, how do you see that, I guess it's a campaign, um, having what kind of effect do you want it to have? You know, do you do you <laughs> hope fashion forever? I, I just would love to know, like, what? <laughs> um, yeah, just love to know a bit more about about kind of the thought process behind it and what what it hopes to achieve. Um, so one of the things that XR do across the board is put really big asks out there. So we're not going to ask people to do something that's really easy, that they're probably already half implementing in their lives. It's about going really big and really dramatic um, because of what we've got to do in order to mitigate the, you know, the, the, the situation we're in are going to be big, dramatic asks. Um, I think it's, it's a really interesting one, this sort of, on a personal level, boycott fashion, because especially with the rise in cheap fashion, fast fashion, um, and the affordability of fashion over the last 20 years, we've got this sort of, you said consumer before, I mean, that's basically what we've all been programmed to become, right? We kind of consume absolutely everything around us at this kind of like really rapacious pace, and it, we just, we can't, we can't keep going. We don't have enough planetary resources left. So the fashion, conversation is a really interesting one because everybody in here is wearing clothes, fortunately. Uh, it would be a bit of a weird uh, afternoon if we weren't. But um, I'm sure that everybody enjoyed getting dressed in the morning to some extent, right? We've all got our favourite clothes, you've got your favourite colours, you've got your favourite brands, you've got your feel-good jeans and your great dress for going out and the lucky shirt and whatever it is you've got in your wardrobe. So whether you consider yourself to be a, um, you know, a sort of fashionista or not, the majority of us have got, um, we've all got our own uh, sort of uh, identity tied up with clothing. So asking people to stop buying and stop shopping is um, a really interesting way to get people to consider their own impact and their own consumption levels. Because, you know, clothing is so cheap. People buy so much of this stuff um, and it's treated as a throwaway commodity. I mean, this is part of the problem, like the amount of clothing that we that we um, is made and is sold and is then worn a couple of times and then discarded and basically treated as disposable and ends up in a bin in landfill and is made of is synthetic fabric. It's never going to biodegrade. We don't know how long synthetic fabric will take to break down because we've been only been making it since the 1930s and people say maybe 200 years, maybe 500 years. Like that's not that's not good enough when these dresses are like 10 pounds and they're being bought every Friday night by people to wear out on Friday night and then by the next Friday night they don't want to wear the same thing. Even to the student union, you know, those students that I work with on that um, BBC project were terrified to go to the student union in the same dress. So they were just boohoo, 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 boohoo. And they're not, I mean, I said not even, but they weren't even studying fashion. They were just completely unrelated fields, just kind of average, your average... Uh, youth, and this is a this is a this is a system that we have um, created for them, and so partly I think I feel like it's fashion's responsibility to clean up its own mess, um, and so that back to the boycott, we are asking individuals to stop shopping so that we can have a period of of um, new materials and new materials and new clothing. You can buy secondhand stuff. Uh, you can go vintage shopping, you can go to clothes swaps, you can loan things, you can hire things, you can lend to each other, you can do lots of different stuff, but to stop feeding the, stop feeding the monster, 
Um, and in, within that, uh, we're also asking the fashion industry to um, stop and tell the truth about its environmental impact. So it's a, a double-sided thing. Just remind me on the question. It was, it was, do we want to just stop fashion? Yeah, about uh, the idea behind boycott fashion okay, yeah. and kind of what, so what are the aims and what does yeah. it hope to achieve? Boycott fa right, okay. So like uh, Alice pointed out, we're not asking people to stop wearing clothes. It's not boycott clothes. And we did have a conversation about what, what is the difference. So fashion is the system of consuming endlessly. Fashion is uh, trends. Very unhealthy. Fashion is the catwalk, which promotes the trends, which is uh, why we asked the British Fashion Council to cancel Fashion Week. That didn't go down. <laughs> Positive. I mean, Fashion Week is not cancelled. Um, so we're just asking for a complete rethink of the fashion industry and how we interact with our clothing. Can we learn to revalue them? You could say, take a step back 30 years where people like, bought so much less, learn to take care of them, learn to mend them. We see this as a potential for an explosion of creativity, working with the resources that are already there before they get to landfill. It is a revisioning of our relationship with clothing. Um, it, it'd be good to talk about the environmental impacts of fast fashion and what kind of things are, are going on, because we've seen the human impacts devastating and terrible but i don't i don't feel there's a great awareness around you know what kind of damage fast fashion is doing to the environment it'd be great if you could speak a bit to that gosh so i think we've lost uh, firstly i think we've lost um we've lost a connection with where our things come from like who without looking at your label knows what kind of fabric they're wearing today one person, two people, three, four, five, possibly. Yeah, like it's 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 kind of confusing. We've 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 forgotten what we're wearing. <laughs> we've forgotten where it comes from. We kind of completely lost track with uh, just how much raw materials it takes to make our clothing. It takes somewhere between ten thousand and twenty thousand liters of water just to make one pair of jeans. Um, or one shirt, and it takes about 3,000 litres of water to make a T-shirt. And these are the same T-shirts that are being sold for £3 in H&M that are misshaping because the garment technology wasn't there, because they were made really quickly, um, because they're being washed on 40 and they're shrinking and we're spilling our food and drinks down them, and then they're ending up in... Uh, they're going to recycling and they're going to charity and they're ending up as shredded as mattress topping because there isn't anything else they c that can be done with them. Or they're just straight up thrown in the bin and they're ending up in landfill. I think um, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has us globally um, getting rid or throwing away to landfill a garbage truck full of clothes every second. Like, how is that possible? How are we consuming our... How, we, how are we not valuing our clothes? How are we throwing things away like this? And this is cotton. It's really precious. It takes, you know, so much water to make it. Cotton's grown in some of the... Um, already some of the most water-stressed regions in the world. Um, so we've got, a, you know, we've got a double issue there. Um, we are, you know, we've lost... I think it's about 30% of our topsoil um, in the last, uh, you know, sort of 20 years. That we're just... 
absolutely ravaging the planet. Then we, we, you know, that's without thinking about all the microplastics that we're washing into the oceans from all of our synthetic clothing that we're washing continually. Like by 2050, if we carry on like this, there will be more plastic in the sea than fish. And I think when people hear that statistic, that it's like, how is that? Where does that come from? It's slewing off our synthetic clothing every time we put them in the washing machine and turn the thing on. You can buy something called a guppy bag, which you put your synthetic clothes in and it co collects all of this stuff. But that's not a solution to the problem. That's just a way of, of, of plugging one little kind of element of it. And then, I mean, uh, sorry, it's, the, it's just a massive, uh, massive question. Keep going, it's um, good. <laughs> And then, we, you know, you've got to consider the um, carbon footprint of uh, the industry, of, like, making all of this stuff and, and shipping it all around the world. Like, the average item of clothing will have been to, potentially will have been to five different countries on its journey of production and manufacture, and that's before it gets to you. Um, we wear, globe, like, the synthetic clothing problem is, 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 is out of control, it's all, and it's all made from fossil fuels, so that's all you know, sort of petrol-based clothing that we're wearing, and we already understand the, the need to keep fossil fuels in the ground, yet this is what is fueling brands like Boohoo and Misguided and Pretty Little Thing. It's completely insane. It's like 64% of the clothing we wear globally is synthetic, and it's worth, and, it's, and, it, and it repre that represents 40% of the um, fashion industry's uh, carbon, man-made carbon footprint. Just synthetic clothing. It's it's completely nuts, but still, you know, still it, the, the, the sales are going through the roof. And it's, if we, if what's that, what's that awful figure? If we, if we carry on at this rate by 2030, we're, it, yeah, it's, we're sorry, we've been sw swimming in seas of statistics recently. It's kind of mind boggling, but you know, to, to put, to, to sort of top line it, we are, we are, screwing the planet for its resources for clothing that we just um, don't care about, throw away and, you know, 1% of clothing, um, only 1% of clothing is actually recycled and about 94% sort of, of clothing that is thrown into landfill can be recycled. So it, it's, it, the mismanagement across the whole system is just huge. It's never, it's never been thought out, right? It's just completely evolved organically with no care and attention. <laughs> the care and attention is in the uh, capitalist sort of like expansion and just the money making. That's the only area of this entire machine that's had any care and attention. It's just profiteering. That's sad. Yeah. I think the big, the big figure is that uh, the fashion industry uh, creates more climate gas emissions than international maritime and aviation combined. Yeah. Oh. Now, anyone who hears that figure has to stop and think, what the... <laughs> And when I told that to my local Extinction Rebellion group, I mean, the sharp intake of breath is, is quite extreme. I think it is because it is shipped around the world. So you grow the cotton here, you weave it in another country, you sew it in another country, you pattern cut it in another country, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Clothes are flown around the world billions of times before they, not b literally billions of times, but too much, before they get to the shop floor. Um, and then you consider that a lot of that stuff is happening in emerging developing nations where they're giving up precious land that they could use to grow their own food to uh, grow cotton, um, that we're paying them a pittance, that their rivers are running with the colors that we have decided that are on trend. Um, I don't know if anyone saw that news story, the blue dogs of New Delhi, where the dogs had drunk from a river and they literally turned blue. 
um, because that was the next color in, in, in fashion. We are wrecking these countries for things that we are not keeping. There's no way you can rationalize this as an ethical thing to do. Um, and it only looks set to get worse from them because these are also precisely the countries that will be paying the hard highest price for climate change. So some of these countries, I think their predictions, countries in Africa aren't going to be exi in existence in the next 30 years' time. The temperature is going to be too hot for them to survive. Sometimes when I talk about the elephants, I think they're not going to make it, you know, because these are going to be uninhabitable areas. We need to start. I think just I th we're so spoiled in the West that it just really upsets me. And I don't think how you can, I just, I, j I can't see how you can hear these things and go, it's it doesn't matter as long as we're okay. And I know that there are people who kind of go, it doesn't matter, we're going to be fine. My, our kids are going to be fine. We're actually facing a situation where they may not be that fine anymore. And one of the things I want to prepare my, my daughter for is, is this climate grief of watching other people suffer so devastatingly for the things that we do in the West. I mean, how do you hold that, you know, on a really basic level? So the environmental impact, it's massive of the fashion industry. And we are not making dialysis machines. We are making things that are thrown away. It's crazy. It's overwhelming, isn't it? Because, you know, we're not told this story. We're not told this story at all as gr growing up. And, you know, there's a reason we're not told it, because it's, it's, oh, it's horrific, you know. And, you know, the future is talking about with millions of climate refugees and, you know, parts of Africa and Asia that are, basically impossible to live in that, that that is very close on the horizon that's not something in the the, f the it's something that could happen in our lifetime definitely so i think if people are starting on this journey where would you recommend they go to like you know sort of to sort of educate themselves because we're not given that education have you got websites or books you'd recommend and things that people can read to kind of like get an idea about where we're at yeah, absolutely. Um, you can always come to both of us uh, online. We are here to answer questions. Like seriously, there is an amazing online community of um, activists and uh, creatives in the sustainable um, fashion world. Because we are still calling it sustainable fashion, even though I'm, you know, slating that terminology. Languages. This is why we need to communicate. This is why we need to have these conversations. This is why we need to sit down and, and discuss ideas and solutions with each other. Um, I think the first thing to do is to sort of try and navigate around our own egos because oh, I, clothing and identity, it's just, it's so intrinsically linked. You want to dress and feel nice. You want to dress um, for your body shape. You want to dress for uh, the specific job that you have or the party that you're going to or the cultural event you're, you know, it's clothing has become, um, is, is sold to us, fashion is sold to us as a kind of democratic right and it, there's never been a kind of uh, more amazing time to express your individuality, right? I mean, you can, you know, you can dress to be whatever you want these days but t so taking our, just trying to take our ego out of it a little bit and consider the bigger picture um, and, you know, you can survive really easily without shopping. It's actually really freeing. There's a guy called um, Reverend Billy. Has anybody heard of him? He's this yeah. American... Yeah. <laughs> I saw him in Paris at the uh, climate march on the, on the tube, didn't we? 
<laughs> he's brilliant, isn't he brilliant? He's amazing. He's this American pastor and he dresses in a polyester suit and he exercise, he'll exercise your demons and he does this whole kind of like, he's the only person I think who's actually been banned from every branch of Starbucks and it's a franchise um, because he goes in with his whole crew and he like exercises cash registers. Free you, and there's like women rubbing his back, going, It's all right, Reverend, it's all right. And he takes like credit cards from the crowd and like snaps them in half, and people are like willingly handing them over, and he like frees you from your debt. Um, he's amazing, and he does this. Uh, is he still doing it? Buy nothing day. Um, and you, and it, it's really hard when you try out, try to go out for the day and not buy anything. It's really hard because often you want to go and buy some fags or you know something for your lunch or just post a letter or whatever. And you can't do any of it with him. Um, I'm digressing slightly, but he's fantastic. But there are the, all of these amazing people online. He's an he's an extreme version, but so many bloggers um, and uh, so many conversations about shopping secondhand, not buying anything, wearing the same dress for 30 days, um, you know, just getting really inventive, um, styling each other. Don't go to the shop, get all your friends around, get all your clothes out, style each other, like lend things to each other, learn to make stuff, upcycle your wardrobe, um, you know, loads of really inventive ways, I think. Love that. Um, obviously, when you talk about where can we get this information from, I'd say go to the Extinction Rebellion website. There is. Extinction Rebellion have three demands. Uh, just remind me. So it's act now. No, tell the truth. Act now and... What was the other one? Climate emergency. Oh, no, no, no. Climate net zero carbon by 2025. Yeah. Um, the starting point is the information. So uh, Extinction Rebellion have a very, very heavy uh, resource called the Heading for Extinction Talk. Um, and it tells you the facts and figures based on you, I mean, international, internationally recognized figures of what's coming. Um, it's heavy, sit through it. It needs to be sat through for the planet and it is the starting point of all your actions. One of the things I'm doing is I'm hosting a talk on climate grief for the next uprising uh, in North London. And I've had to do a bit of research about it. And climate grief is about hearing the figures, hearing the facts, feeling the pain, and then using the pain to move forward. Not sitting in the pain and going, it's all finished and it's all hopeless. It's a very, very interesting psychological dynamic. Um, I read a very depressing article in my research last night. I had a very, very depressing dream about climate annihilation. <laughs> I woke up feeling very depressed. Um, but I also think that if I can turn that negative energy into something positive, at least I'm doing something. I'd also say to you, come to the uprising. We've got a ma Extinction Rebellion have got a massive uprising. Rebellion, we call it, on October the 7th. We need people out on the streets just showing that you're not happy with the system as it is. Um, you don't have to get arrested. You don't have to do anything. You just have to turn up and be part of this incredible atmosphere. Because one of the things I'll say about Extinction Rebellion events is they are weirdly full of joy and creativity and people being silly. They are actually really happy things to go to. But if we can get people out on the streets, we can make a sign to the corporations and the governments that we need systemic change. One of the things that also... Um, um, Extinction Rebellion do, it's sometimes people say to us, what, what, what are the solutions? What do you see the high street to be? If we take away shopping, think about it, 70% of this, I mean, 90% of this space that we're in now is about consuming. What, 
happens when we stop consuming? How can we re re revision these spaces? What are going to be people people going to be doing in these spaces instead? Now, I do have some ideas about that, but Extinction Rebellion, the philosophy is that we don't tell you what it is. We ask you to get together in people's assemblies to decide together. And one of the things, again, that we asked the British Fashion Council to do was convene a citizens' assembly of designers to get together to share solutions and knowledge and to come up with solutions together. So I don't have to tell the designers at the BFC what they should be doing. They're going to be coming up with it yeah. on their own. One thing I will add to this, both tragically and hopefully, the solutions are there already. Everything we need is on this planet right now. If we planted more trees, for example, it would start pulling the carbon down out of the atmosphere and would start cooling the planet again. We just need to plant more trees. The problem with these solutions is they're not being funded by big business and corporations because they're not profit-making in the way the corporations would like them to be profit-making. So the hopeful thing of all of this is all the solutions are there. They really are all the solutions for using our clothing in new ways, growing our food, stopping killing the animals. I am an animal rights activist as well. Um, and the toll that animal agriculture takes on the planet is equivalent to fashion. Th everything is out there for our taking. Identify the solutions, support them, talk about them, share, listen to this gloomy talk, and take what you can from it to turn it into a positive energy. Um, Belle, can you, or both of you, can you talk about the demands you were making to the British Fashion Council yesterday? <laughs> tell, us, tell us about what you were doing. To we <laughs> wanted... Okay, it was quite an interesting meeting. I don't know how much I'm supposed to talk about it. Am I I say say what it. you can. Right, okay. So we actually have a very, very good relationship with the British Fashion Council. We did the heading... I didn't. But the, they, Caroline Rush, the head of the BFC, heard the heading for Extinction talk a season ago. We sat down, we uh, boycott fashion, gave her the talk. She was really moved by it. I think she was uh, in tears. She knows the urgency of the situation. She wants to change the system from within. They've got a whole load of initiatives to work positively with designers, both those who don't know anything about this or don't care, or those who are on the journey but need help. So we went into this meeting, and we did ask her to cancel London Fashion Week, and I don't think that we went in there thinking she's going to go, God damn it, you're right, we're going to do it. But she did outline a lot of things that she was doing. We're going to support her in that transformation. We are giving the heading for extinction, no, not me personally, but the heading for extinction talk will be given to fashion designers, those who want to attend at London Fashion Week. Um, we are working with Lond British Fashion Council on developing a citizens' assembly for designers. Uh, I personally don't know how that... That's, I mean, but there's so many resources within Extinction Rebellion, we can probably get become pretty informed. So... If we want a group of designers to all to get all together in the same room and talk about solutions and potentials for creativity, um, they're going to be doing that, hopefully. We'll just assist them, and then we'll have another conversation with them in February and try and move this forward. I think it's great that you are speaking to these people directly about this because these institutions have been set in their ways for you know decades, and it's, it's not gonna, change isn't going to happen overnight. And so the conversations we're having now, you know, may not seem like much progress is going to be made, but are planting the seed for future change in the way things work. So I think it's really positive. Um, well, this is why it's a this is why it's a massive ask. So it's not just a kind of you know asking them to do something incremental that they've already got 
that they're already they've already set in 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 place but also it's about challenging um people's creativity you know we've we've London has always been a leader on the fashion scene. It's we've got always had an amazing street style culture. We've uh, we've had we've you know we've we've um, birthed and housed some of the most uh, creative, dynamic designers and creative minds. Uh, you know, on the on the international fashion scene, and so this is just reframing it. It's like we have a we have a problem. We have we're in an environmental crisis. Uh, it's an emergency. We have a problem. Um, what are your creative solutions? Like, it's actually really exciting and it should be seen as being really exciting and really challenging in, a, in an engaging way. I mean, you know, like Belle said, you see the talk and it's heartbreaking and it needs to be, you know, we all need to, we all need to hear the hard facts. But then after you've had a little emotional breakdown about it all and, you know, this kind of eco-grief, it's real. Um, then, then comes the time for creating solutions um, and solving problems. And I, th I find that really exciting. Yeah, uh, so I love to hear like a couple. So it's been quite um, a serious chat. <laughs> uh, what reasons do, do we all have to be cheerful about the future of fashion? Are there reasons to be cheerful? Do we think that you know there there is hope? Yeah, definitely. Um, we've got some amazing. Yeah, I mean, talking specifically about designers, we've got some amazing young designers in this country. Um, there's a beautiful brand called Birdsong, and they. Um, you know, birds. I'm sure lots of people here know Birdsong, and they have uh, their business model is part um, sort of social inclusion, uh, sort of uh, so it's a you know socially minded brand. They work with um, asylum seekers and women's co-ops, and providing routes to work for people who might not normally be able to get you know have a have a direct uh, route to employment. Um, and their strapline is no Photoshop, no sweatshops. So not only do they not manufacture in sweatshops, none of their imagery is photoshopped at all so and they use real women in their campaigns and it's just you know it's cutting out all of the sort of fashion noise and they're just a really strong feminist brand um, there's a designer called uh, Bethany Williams um, and she uh, is again you know very socially minded project um, she gives uh, ex you know sort of a a large chunk of the proceeds of her collections away to charities of her choice. She also works directly with those charities. Um, she upcycles and recycles absolutely everything she can. Um, she works really slowly. She works with uh, uh, a women's prison um, in uh, Italy, uh, developing textiles. Like Every stage of her business has been built to improve the lives of other people. There is no route through her business that doesn't um, include empowering and caring for somebody else and that's how business should be it should be really inclusive really socially minded um, whilst being really environmentally friendly so you know there are, there are loads of amazing brands um, and I even hate calling them brands actually because I feel like this is like the future the future's community the future's inclusion it's the language and you've been like we've got to rewrite the language right yeah <laughs> I think we do it's like the consumption thing you know I don't want to be a consumer of clothes I don't necessarily want to be the owner of a brand but we, yeah we need we need different language but there's loads of really great stuff happening and then um also, just back to the resources thing as well, um, I'm sure everybody here knows Fashion Revolution, who've been doing amazing work in uh, the sustainable fashion sphere, and they have got a wealth of resources on their website for people to go and check out. What are your reasons to be cheerful? A uh, reason to be cheerful, just the sheer amount of creativity that um, can be unlocked by using what you already own. Um, 
and I mean, I love Extinction Rebellion. I mean, the Extinction Rebellion events. I mean, I'm not, it's not just boycott fashion. I'm involved in my local group and youth liaison and animal agriculture. And just the creativity and bonkerness. Uh, they're just bonkers, but they're so hopeful that change can occur. I think change will occur. And I think that also gives me hope to see them out on the streets. I think this debate is going to get fiery and crazy and brilliant and amazing. Um, what else gives me hope? Reason to be cheerful, reconnection with nature. I think we've lost touch with the beauty that we've been given and more and more people are just going, it, there's a bird in the tree, that is fucking awesome. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And being able to reconnect in that way has given me a lot of joy. I mean, Jesus, you know, that's fantastic. I mean, I, I even look at my dog differently. She's a miracle, <laughs> you know, and we are so lucky to have been placed on this. Obviously, concurrent with that is the grief that we're also burning it to the ground, but we have a chance now, a window, like you'd never believed, to save all of this stuff. So, yeah, there are amazing reasons to be hopeful. That is an interesting way to look at it, you know, that this is a very hectic time to live in for the planet, right? The planet is under siege, you know, but us as individuals and collectively together, we have an opportunity to really add actions and what we do count. They really count more now than more than ever. So it's a it's a vital time to be alive almost. Yeah, totally. And it's giving us um I think it's giving us a really great opportunity to reconnect with each other as well. Like you go out onto the streets with XR and you go to one of the events and it just people from all walks of life talking and engaging People come and cook free food and hand food out, and you can stand in these amazing, uh, you know, public spaces that are usually filled with cars and um, pollution, and just reconnect with others around you. And in this age of like, who in this room has has just been overwhelmed by social social media in the last week? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I feel like everybody's had some point in the last week where they've just. We wake up in the morning and we're bombarded with our, from our emails, from our Twitter, from Instagram. I, you know, I'm on about 25 different WhatsApp groups just for this one project alone. <laughs> it's completely insane. Um, and we are, you know, feeding back into all of the fast fashion nonsense as well. Like the online, online and digital is so exciting, but it's also completely. I feel like it's isolating us and giving us so many more kind of. Um, horrendous problems and the, this is what's great about this movement calling for change is that it's allowing us to like down tools and socialize again like actually socialize yeah, like in, and get out real, and meet people in real life right? yeah in real life like <laughs> actually get stuff done in real life and like i think we've lost i think we've lost track of that over the last few years and it's really nice to get back stuck into community again yeah, yeah that's nice the other thing that gives me hope, kids, the kids are yeah. incredible. Uh, through Extinction Rebellion, in uh, the Extinction Rebellion, the different youth movements, I've just encountered a new being, um, driven, passionate, young 16, 17-year-olds. They're like another, and they're just wonderful. Um, and sometimes I go to a, a demo with them, and I just stand back and I let them take you know, the lead, because they are, not only will they have to live through some of the decisions, but they are in a position where they can change. The voice of the youth are absolutely key to this movement. And I've been so inspired by the kids in our local group. Unbelievable. Amazing. Yeah, all about the youth. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. It's not easy to talk about these issues and, you know, something you're both very passionate about and, you know, having to 
look at it over the years in a, a different light. So I really appreciate you both coming and sharing with us all. And we're going to do a Q&A now. So if people got questions, pop your hand up and we'll run a microphone around. Do you think with, with things like this, equally, sometimes the solutions can be a part of the problem? So just like Damien at the end there felt the need to kind of make us all feel better and say, what's the good points? What's the good news and stuff like that? Whereas everything else had led up into the point of us rightly so talking about how we're in a crisis. Do you think the solutions and the band-aids that we're putting on the fashion industry by the greenwashing, as we've, we've spoke about, but even some of the more green initiatives, if we've already got enough clothes around us to last us more than a lifetime, so that's a part of the problem that we always keep making ourselves feel better. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that, the, well, the first thing I tell anybody who comes to me and asks me how they can become more sustainable um, with their clothing is to stop shopping. Like the first thing people kind of like, what can I buy? What can I buy? That's our, that's our go-to, isn't it? Um, how do we, how can we shop? And we can't shop our way out of this problem. We just, we cannot consume more stuff to, to alleviate this. So yeah, absolutely. And it's just, again, like we were saying, it's, it's language um, and it's, it's having a pause. And that's one of the things that we want the boycott fashion initiative to be about is giving people that space to just stop. And like when you stop shopping for one thing, you're, I mean, you might shop for more food to comfort yourself, but you know, you're most likely to you're not out in the shops, you're not go you've not gone to buy that pair of jeans and then gone and bought another iPhone charger and then ended up somewhere buying like, you know, what and you suddenly come home and you've got like five shopping bags full of stuff you didn't realise you needed because you don't. So yeah, absolutely, there's a, a, a pause and a space. One of, the one of the key writers in um, Climate Grief is called Jem Bendel, and he wrote a paper called Deep Adaptation. And he raised exactly your point. He said, if you run around being busy with direct actions and protest, you've distracted yourself from the main problem. Um, my answer to that is, what option do we have? We can't just stop and sit in the grief. We can't, you know, sometimes... Mm, some of the solutions are actually making the problem. I, oh God, sorry, it's such a big subject. Um, I listened to a TED talk which said actually nuclear is the way forward. And actually nuclear production has been falling. But actually this guy who'd been working in green energy for ages was going, no, nuclear is the way forward because we can mobilize it quickly. Um, it needs less land to produce as much power as acres and acres of solar farms would, you know. So everyone who's been sitting back, I mean, I watched this and I went, oh my God, I've been supporting solar power for so long and now I'm wrong, I should be supporting nuclear. So that's a solution that actually might be making the problem worse. But you do the best you can with the knowledge that you have at the time. Because otherwise we'd just stop, wouldn't we? One of the issues I find, one of the practices I find really interesting with Extinction Rebellion is you have to go from the micro to the macro, by which, means, by which I mean you look at what you're doing and then you connect it with the big story. And I don't know how that relates to what you said, but you, we're co I'm constantly having to do that. Um, oh, I can't explain it any better, sorry. It's really that micro to macro, this is exactly what you're asking with, with um, greenwashing and you know, cheap, cheap sustainable fashion, is you know, we go out and we think we feel better about ourselves. And this is the danger of sustainable fashion and these green initiatives, is that they offer a very quick kind of balm to us as Westerners. And it 
it, it's a quick fix. It's so, it sorted that little bit of angst and panic and um, guilt that out that we have. You know, I drive a car. I uh, eat fast food. I, you know, whatever your consumptions are that you you know are harming the planet. Um, and you go out and you buy an organic pair of jeans and you feel like you've done something. You feel like you've voted with your money. You've done something green and you've absolved yourself of guilt. And therefore, you don't need to go and do anything. But actually, you are just making the problem worse because you're feeding into a brand that is systemically problematic and is producing too much stuff. So this is, you know, part of it is education. And I say that really gently and really friendly. Like, it's not about... XR and the way that we've always worked anyway is not about blaming people, blaming individuals, because we're all part of this system. The system's toxic. Um, you know, we didn't create it. We participate in it. But uh, just, again, having that pause to educate ourselves about that cheap purchase and what it means throughout the system. <sighs> so much to say. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was a real eye-opener. Um, my question is about um, a lack of transparency in labelling. Um, you know, when, when I go out to, to buy um, buy clothes, um, you know, and I look at the labels, um, and uh, and yeah, I can see what it's made of. You know, it could be um, mixed polyester cotton, um, mixed with lycra. But um, my bugbear is that. I don't know whether the, the clothes that, that I'm buying, um, what the color, uh, where they've derived the, the color from. Um, you know, I don't know whether it's derived from animals. I know years and years ago, um, you know, uh, 20 plus years ago, um, when I first became vegan, I heard that, you know, that there was a boycott against United Colors of Benetton because they use um, animal dye but I don't know whether any of the other stores actually use um, animal dye, and how would I find this out? The first thing I'd suggest you do, there's a couple of things. Go to um, the um, PETA website and see what see if their brands are listed there. Second thing is to ask the brands directly. Like We all forget that we've got that power. Um, ask the brands. If, you have any, if you're in any doubt about whether you should buy something, don't buy it. Take a picture of it. Tweet the brand. Email the brand. Contact them on your social media. Um, Fashion Revolution reminded us that we could do this with the uh, Who Made My Clothes campaign. I don't know if anyone's participated in that. It's been really engaging. It's been forcing the brands to come up with more information. Um, as far as labeling goes, when Rana Plaza hit, um, some of the brands were only identifiable because their clothes were on labels that were pulled from the rubble. Um, the uh, problems of outsourcing and transparency and traceability throughout the supply chain have just got had gotten so, and still are so out of hand. Brands have, you know, uh, had very little knowledge about who was producing their clothes, where things were being made, um, and so labelling is, you know, accurate labelling on clothing is something that's really just starting to come through now and be pushed for now. It's it's a it's a massive, you know, that that level of transparency is still a massive problem. But I would always advocate that you ask the brand and demand to know because you're their customer and this is Im this is important information that needs to be if not on the product on their website i don't really have anything to add to that i mean that's pretty much summed it up what i love this uh in another talk i went to an author called tansy hobson uh, Ho oh no hoskins hoskins said stop being consumers and start to be citizens 
which means you have the right to ask questions and participate in this process. And that's the only thing I'd add to that, really. Um, so, like, what you were saying before about the resources and where to get the information from, I think is, like, amazing. And I think, like, the reason we do these events is to inspire and to give the information to people. But what I'm conscious of is that the people who come to our events and the people who seek the information already are on that journey of wanting to find out more and to, you know, be part of that change. How do we get the information to people who really need to see it? You know, people like, you You know, I was talking to you about my niece, for example, like, someone who, you know, the younger generations who aren't involved with XR and who just have no awareness and who are doing the boohoo thing every you know every week because they want a new outfit um how do we get that information out there for example with metro like do you think you have you tried to get back in touch with metro or those kind of mainstream outlets because it's you know kind of mainstream consuming that i guess mm. um <laughs> do you know what i was on the tube here and i was really really inspired someone might be able to help me with this um by a video in new york where a man literally got up on the tube and he went I'm from Extinction Rebellion, and this is why you need to listen to me. And I thought, can I do this with my local group? Can I, you know, can I speak to people? They're a captive audience. Can I do one minute heading for Extinction Talks? We need to use whatever resources we can. The other thing I've got in place now, and I've just got funding for, is a fashion in schools program, where I'm writing a PowerPoint, and I'll send out letters to schools in my areas, and I'll just go, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to talk to the kids, just before they get to that age where they just want to consume, about how the mechanisms of fashion work, why they suddenly want to buy so many things, what the impact of that is. And then I was going to ask people like Alice and all the resources available to me throughout my fashion network to come in and show kids how to restyle stuff, how to embroider stuff, um, how to make do and mend, how to create their own, how to woodblock print. We just need to communicate more with our peers, and we need to use the, res the, the talents that we each of us have here. You are all incredibly skilled people. How can you use those skills in your fields to communicate these issues? But you're right, reaching the greater pop I mean, Extinction Rebellion have done amazing things already for raising awareness. We now have the term climate emergency in common parlance. Okay, this wasn't there four months ago, and I can't wait to see what they're gonna do in the next four months. Yeah, I'm just going to uh, reiterate what Belle said. Just talk to people. Like, we all have massive networks of people, not necessarily, not just the ones that we are in immediate contact with, but their friends and sisters and brothers and cousins and uncles and et cetera. Like, the list goes on. And we have, um, just think we've forgotten our own power. We don't sit in it enough. We don't communicate it enough. And it's, you know, real, authentic communication and conversations with each other and people that you trust and people that you know with where you can back it up with facts and you can back it up with information and the solutions are joyful like they're not you know it's not all doom and gloom I know we've said a lot of gloomy stuff but it isn't all doom and gloom like what do we do when we um, when we have to reimagine this when we have to reimagine our community and we have to reimagine the systems that we're in we can choose to put really positive ones in place that take care of each other and foster more community and foster more respect and foster more joy like um so having conversations with people doesn't necessarily need to be scary and i but even myself i've forgotten that i can say things that have a positive impact. And in the last few months, I've been doing more and more talks, and I've had um, friends come back to me and friends of friends say thank you so much for saying that, because I'm now considering differently what I do. And it just, it you don't have to be sitting on a stage with a microphone in order to do that. It's the, those real 
honest, heartfelt conversations where you're actually talking about something that's really important and really powerful and really joyful. Here I come with a slightly negative. <laughs> um, not all of those conversations are going to be easy. Talking about veganism to my father-in-law is quite a hilarious thing. Um, but on the other hand, my partner was quite resistant for a while. I mean, she couldn't understand why I was getting so excited about things. And about uh, two months ago, I heard him talking to that same father-in-law going, the climate is in crisis. So you don't know how you influence people. Do be prepared for I mean, I've had some sticky conversations, particularly around veganism. God, that attracts a lot of emotion. But we all need a lot of moral courage in this time. Actually, it's quite exciting to push our boundaries. And it makes you get to grips with facts. It makes you understand your own limitations or possibilities even. Finally, Clara Hermit talks about her mental health journey and how she became a BBC radio presenter. So my name's Clara. I have a radio show on BBC Radio London. I'm a life coach and I'm also vegan. Um, so when Damien and Judy asked me to do this talk, I really was struggling with what to talk about, which if you know me is a bit weird because I like to talk. Um, but I found that I was coming home this week every single evening, sitting down in front of my laptop and thinking, right, what am I going to talk about? And at that point, I would make my dinner, I would put Netflix on, and I was only going to watch one episode, but then one episode turned into five episodes and I still hadn't written anything. So when I woke up this morning, um, I was like, right, okay, now you really have to do something because otherwise you're going to turn up and you're just going to waffle about something for half an hour, which isn't easy. And I didn't want to do that either. I wanted to make sure that um, I had actually created something and put something together. So I decided that I would hold myself to account. Um, and that's when I kind of had this realization that self-discipline for me is something that I've really had to cultivate over the last six months and that it took self-discipline for me to write um, what I'm about to talk about. And so what I wanted to say and the statement that I wanted to make with what I'm saying today is that self-discipline is self-love. So self-love is this thing that we see on social media. It's a hashtag. It's about bubble baths and candles and healthy food and exercising in coordinated um, uh, clothes. It's about movie nights. And that's kind of what we see of self-love. But for me, self-love has been painful, it's been humiliating, it's been hard, um, it's been therapy, it's been digging deep in my emotional past, tackling my limiting beliefs, and being self-disciplined enough to finally have a self-care routine that's allowed me to restore trust in myself. So for any of this to make sense, you're thinking, gosh, self-love, you haven't really sold it to me, it sounds awful. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about myself and how I came to a place where self-love has been all of those things for me. Some people know, might know a little bit about my story, some people might not. But I was blessed enough to grow up on a farm in Essex. It was beautiful. I was really lucky. My mum and dad loved each other. They loved me. They loved my brother, my sister. We had lots of free space. It was a, a beautiful, beautiful time. Um, and when my brother was born, my mum got breast cancer for the first time. I would have been two and a half years old and I remember nothing of it. There is no kind of moment that sticks out to me that I realised that anything was wrong. It wasn't until I was eight and my mum's breast cancer came back everywhere that I knew that something was wrong. Um, within a year of finding out that my mum had secondaries everywhere, she died. And the day that she died, 
My dad died, I died, my brother died, and my sister died. It was like someone had stopped the universe for just a split second, then starting everything spinning again. And although it looked the same, nothing was the same and nothing would ever be the same. What I've learned about grief from that experience is that when someone dies, we, we should look at it like a house. So this is the way that it works in my mind. So if a family or a person is a house, someone dies, it's the equivalent to an earthquake hitting that house. And it rips into the foundations of the house and it causes a massive crack in the foundations and it goes all the way up the walls. And so the house is no longer a stable structure. And what should happen is that house should be allowed to fall to the ground, the house should be demolished, and then once the dust has settled, you can rebuild that house, a strong and stable structure. But in my case, what happened is my dad decided to fill in the cracks with a little bit of filler and then just paint over the top of them. Um, so basically, that was the way that he decided to deal with things, and that's how we grew up. And in my household, there was no self-discipline. So my dad used to be a bit of an authoritarian. Once my mum had died, he just didn't care. I didn't have to go to school if I didn't want to. It didn't matter what I ate. Like, nothing literally mattered. There was no discipline. and There was no guidance either. There was no consideration about a future. What did I want to do? Did I want to do this? Did I want to do that? It just became about survival. So... As I was growing up, my life, I would describe it as being pretty chaotic. And it was like for years that I was in water paddling just to keep my head above the surface. Um, and by the time I was 18, I was severely bulimic. And the way that I define severely bulimic is that I was making myself sick probably three times a day. And bulimia dictated every aspect of my life, whether I went out, whether I went to work, whether I spoke to my friends. Um, and it, it completely taken over. As well as being severely bulimic, I was also painfully shy, which some people would be like, what? Uh, but I was painfully shy. I couldn't talk to anyone. And even picking up a phone and calling a doctor to make an appointment or an opticians was really difficult for me. So I was really struggling. But at the same time, and this is where I was a complete contradiction, I would describe myself as a physical extrovert. And what I mean by that is I dressed provocatively, I got drunk, and I craved love and affection. Um, I didn't know how to communicate though, so I was stuck somewhere in a grieving process that I didn't even know was a process, uh, and I didn't know that it was a thing, and I, I realise now that, um, that grief is a human mechanism to heal, and unfortunately I didn't know that at the time, so uh, I was just kind of in no man's land. And I would say that presenting saved my life, and that's quite a big statement to make. I never set out to be a presenter. I never planned it. I was painfully shy. It wouldn't make any sense. If someone had suggested it to me, I'd have been like, no, you're crazy. Uh, but I had a boyfriend when I was 21, and he had a set of friends, and they all did different jobs. On one of them, she had a job as a presenter for the awful game shows that were on Sky that got into a lot of trouble because they were just ripping people off. Um, and she invited me to a party, uh, an industry party, and I met a guy who had his own... TV station or channel, sorry, on Sky, and he was setting up exactly the same kind of show. When I met him, I was the drunk extrovert, so he was like, You'll be great, you can do this. Um, and when I woke up the next morning, I had his business card, but I had no intention of calling him because I couldn't speak. Um, my boyfriend at the time made sure that I called him, and I did. And I went along to do a screen test, which was the most painful awful experience of my life and if that tape exists anywhere it should be burnt um it was just awful and the producer of the show said there's no way we can work with her like she can't do this she's just useless uh, but the guy who owned the channel who had seen me drunk was like no she's gonna be fine um and and so I went ahead and on the first night on air I actually was fine 
And it was really weird because something happened to me when I stepped on camera. I left my baggage to one side and I became somebody that I'd never been before and it was a somebody that I thought I wanted to be. Uh, so my confidence started to, to build and I felt so much freer. Um, and eventually I entered a competition to do a show for Sky Vegas, which was Sky's official gaming channel, so it wasn't dodgy. Um, and I uh, entered the competition and I didn't win it, but they did give me a job. So rather than just doing one show, I got to work for them. So life was starting to go pretty good. I had this job, I was earning money, um, and I was really enjoying it. And I could see some kind of future and I could see like this is going somewhere, this is great. Um, and then my, my big sister came around to see me, which wasn't that unusual, maybe a little bit. She was two and a half years older than me. We hadn't always got on, but as we got into our 20s, we started to get on. Um, I was 23, she was 25. She sat me down and told me that she had breast cancer. Um, and on that day, my world collapsed. So this world and life that I'd come to know and this thing that I built suddenly just disappeared. Um, and I did what I'd always done and what I'd been taught to do, which was to carry on regardless. So just as my dad had done when my mum died, you just carry on. You just pretend like nothing's happening. You go to work, you do what you've got to do. I was driving from Essex to Teddington which on the M25, which is a bit of a, a long drive. Um, and I started to have uh, vertigo, I guess. I started to get dizzy and I started to really struggle with driving. The dizziness would then lead to panic attacks. At the time I was in complete denial there were panic attacks because this would never happen to me because there's nothing wrong with my mental health and I'm absolutely fine. But what was happening was I was driving, being unable to drive and then having to get someone to come and pick me up, take me home. Um, so eventually I had to leave my job as a presenter for Sky. Um, and I was told that it was stress-induced vertigo that I had, and the advice was to just make my life less stressful, which was uh, which was pretty tough at the time. And there was no suggestion of like this being a mental health issue or me maybe needing some support. It was just, um, yeah, just get on with it, basically. So um, six and a half years of operations, chemo, drug trials, radiotherapy, alternative uh, treatments, and various diets, my sister died. So six and a half years after she got breast cancer at 31, she died. Um, and I was absolutely heartbroken. She was my best friend, but I was back at work within two days. So I was back doing what I'd always done, which is throw yourself back in at the deep end, just carry on, uh, just get on with life. But something had changed at this point, and I'd started to talk to my friends, which I'd never really done before. I'd started to kind of open up to them, to be honest. Um, but I was an actual minefield, and I envisioned myself like that because there was triggers that I had everywhere. So somebody could trigger me emotionally, and I would just explode. It didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand myself. Other people certainly didn't understand me. Um, and there was two things that happened I, I would say, you could say di divine intervention, or you could say it was just random. Um, but I, at the time, was interviewing uh, various different music artists. One of those artists was a big American artist. And when I met him, I got on really well with him and his management. And they were back in the UK, and I'd been speaking to his manager, who also happened to be a life coach, while they were away, and my sister had just passed away. And he told me about a lady called Byron Katie. I don't know if anyone knows about her, but she has a system of, she calls written meditation called The Work. And it's a system where you question your thoughts and you question your beliefs and you find out whether or not there's actually any truth in them. Um, and so he told me about that and I looked into that and that started to really help me. A few months later, he was in the UK and I did what I always did. Some of my friends, we all went out together, we got drunk, we went back to the hotel and I was in the hotel lobby. And I was sat with this guy who's also a life coach and he started to question every single thing about me. And within that 
came out a lot of limiting beliefs, came out this victimhood that I had, this poor me story uh, for what my life had been and what I'd experienced. Um, and that kind of really triggered something in me that made me look at myself and realize that unless I take responsibility for every single aspect of my life, then nothing was ever going to change. And I'd like to say that I had this massive epiphany and my life changed overnight and it was completely different and I was a different person. I was happy and I was joyful at the end, but it wasn't quite like that. It's been a process um, of, of years of kind of working hard and, uh, and never giving up. Um, so I got into a place where I was doing shows for BBC Radio 1 Extra, I was presenting for BT Sport, uh, but at that time I still didn't feel like I fitted in or I belonged, and in my mind I just wasn't good enough to be there. Um, I was like two people, so I was kind of like this public persona, but I was also a bit of an emotional mess. And um, when my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer, they tested her for the gene mutations, the cancer-causing gene mutations. Um, and it was discovered that she had the BRCA1 gene mutation. And I was offered the test, and I took it, and I too had the BRCA1 gene mutation, which gives you an increased risk of getting breast cancer. Um, and I knew about the diagnosis, and I'd had it for ages. Um, and I was in my early 30s, and I was in the bath, and I thought, I should really just check my boobs, you know, my family history. And I just thought, is that a lump? And then I thought, is that a lump? And I had this panic, and that had never happened to me before. And that was the day I decided to have a preventative double mastectomy, which I knew was uh, kind of the prescribed form of um, treatment or solution for someone who carries the BRCA1 gene mutation. So I decided to have a mastectomy, and I decided to do it very publicly. Um, I did a story for Radio 1. I did some stuff for The Guardian, for The Daily Mail, Huffington Post, Cosmo. I guess for me, I felt like it was empowering, and I was doing something positive for my life. And it was also around this time that I went vegan as well. Um, so yeah, I had, I had this operation. And after I'd had the operation, I went back to work, and life just felt really weird. So. The operation gave me eight weeks off work, and as you'll know from me telling you my story, I didn't like to take a lot of time off of doing work. And having that eight weeks to just do nothing really brought up a lot of kind of stuff that I'd pushed down and thought I'd dealt with. Um, so when I went back to One Extra and I went back to BT Sport, I just kind of didn't really fit anymore if I'd ever fitted before, but I felt really uncomfortable. And that's when the little voice in my head started. And the little voice in my head just kept saying, go traveling. Um, <laughs> And the, the little voice was, was pretty relentless. And so this voice kept going, go traveling. I was like, no, that's crazy. Then the voice would go, go traveling. And so um, a few months after having this voice telling me to go traveling, I was sat with someone who was from the industry, uh, someone that I knew and respected. And I told them about this little voice that had told me to go traveling. And his response was, you'd be stupid if you do it. You've worked so hard and you've got yourself to where you are now. If you go, then you're just letting go of everything you've built. So I was like, oh. But then the little voice said, go traveling. So I was like, okay, it's not going anywhere. So I decided that I'd speak to my friends and family about it. And they told me that I should go traveling and that it would be the best thing that I could possibly do. And I was in my early 30s. So I think people always think when you go traveling, it's something you do when you're in your 20s or your late teens. And once you get to 30, it's kind of too late to let go of everything and, and just not worry about it. Um, but I did let go of everything. And I went for 10 months. And of that 10 months, I spent the last month in a yoga school in Mexico called Radaya, which means uh, the spiritual heart in Sanskrit. And the way I describe it is like 
being Harry Potter and finding Hogwarts because by that time I'd read loads of spiritual books and I was kind of like who can I talk to about this stuff and when I went there it was like this whole community of people who were on my page and although it was a yoga school um, Hatha Yoga the focus wasn't particularly on the physical side of yoga it was more on uh, the theory and more on meditation so I was really really into it and I spent a month there and it was kind of life-changing and it was amazing but then I came back home. Um, and it's easy to maintain a spiritual practice when you're in a, when you've got a sangha, when you've got that spiritual community, when you're in a place where everybody is practicing every day and you're supporting each other. But when you come back home and there's family and there's social media and there's work and then you, you've got just like your general life, I didn't keep up with those practices. Again, no discipline. Um, I knew that I wanted to make changes to my life, but I didn't really know where to start. So in the true style of me, I just didn't start, which again, no discipline. Um, I have, or I did manage uh, some personal consistencies, which might seem small to other people, but to me were pretty good. Um, I did take myself to therapy. I did start writing things down and getting things out of my mind and onto paper. I did go to various uh, different talks on different approaches to spirituality and self-development. I did read lots of books. I wrote letters to my mum and my sister. Um, I learned to express myself and communicate more freely. And I did burn a lot of white sage as well. Um, and to me, this is self-love and this is self-discipline. Um, so one of the things that is also self-love and has been life-changing for me is addressing my limiting beliefs, um, which I think we all have. And some of them can be kind of so far in our subconscious that we're not even aware that we're there, but they're shaping our lives, they're shaping the way we act, they're shaping what we do, what we don't do. Um, so some of mine are nobody likes me, people won't like me, uh, I'm too old, I'm not good enough, I'm not intelligent enough, I'm not attractive enough, what I say isn't important, no one will ever love me, I'll never be successful, uh, I can't look after myself, I could go on. Um, but once I realized that my limiting beliefs were shaping my existence, I knew that I had to reprogram myself. I also knew that I had to be my own hero. So there was no more waiting for knights in shining armor, no more waiting for somebody to come and rescue me. Um, I realized, knew, and felt that it was my job to love me, heal me, and rescue me. I knew I had the tools to do both, and I had the power to do it. And to me, that's self-love. No more playing the victim or using my past as excuses, taking responsibility, that's also self-love. So uh, my job at BBC Radio London happened, and I started the shows in November, but the process started around this time last year. And it only happened because someone who used to be a Grime MC when I worked for Grime Daily uh, is now a BBC producer. He doesn't even work for BBC Radio London, but he was asked if he could recommend anyone, or if there's anyone that he thought might be suitable for the new strain of shows, and he put my name forward. Um, so divine intervention, Maybe, who knows? Um, but I got the show and I started last November, as I said. I was really excited that I've got this show and then um, I was overcome with anxiety. And anxiety, I guess, is something that I've probably always had, but it wasn't until I started to have times without it that I realized that I had it. And doing a live radio show with anxiety and kind of reaching the point where you're about to go into a panic attack isn't really that ideal, but I have kind of learned to, to manage it and to deal with it. Um, so... Because of self-discipline, I now meditate, read from two books, and say affirmations out loud in the mirror every single morning, um, which to other people might be like, yeah, I've been doing that for years. It's taken me, even though I'm knowing I should do it, it's taken me a long time to get to the place where I can do it. Um, one of the things that I say in one of those affirmations is that I am deeply and truly in love with all aspects of myself. 
And I think that's really important because aspects of myself do include anxiety. They include the fact that I'm emotional. They include the fact that I sometimes am not self-disciplined. So I think that it means loving all of you. And uh, that's why that one's in there. So, so um, being self-disciplined with anything, to me, is like building a wall. And what you have to do is put those little bricks in one at a time. And each one of those little bricks is the little steps that you have to take every single day. And if you stop placing the bricks, then you never, ever complete the wall. And I know that sometimes placing the bricks can be monotonous, it can be boring, and it can be mm, not that comfortable. And sometimes I think we avoid the discomfort in the moment to take the pleasure that we could have, i.e. distracting ourselves with watching Netflix or eating food or whatever it is that, we, that we're doing. Um, and then what happens is when we don't take those small steps and we're not putting those bricks in place, we end up not building anything. So we end up never reaching the goal that we set out to attain. Um, so I think that by facing pain today and working through it, I'm creating a future that's freer, happier and easier. And I just want to finish by saying that we are all immensely powerful. We're born into a world that doesn't teach us this. Therefore, we have to teach ourselves and each other. You're not your body. You're not your personality or your story. You're cap you are capable of creating a life that you want and the you that you wish to be. Stop doubting yourself. Take the brakes off and just fucking do it. Thank you. Uh, I really, really love and appreciate the way you put across um, not only your story to help people know where you've come from, because like you say, a lot of times, you know, people would be really, really surprised that you, you're shy and things like that because you've got such a great personality, but also that you really enforce the fact that self-love isn't always not doing something. A lot of people think self-love is kind of like going back to bed or sleeping in or going and taking a bath. Sometimes it's actually being dif disciplined enough for yourself to go and do the thing that actually makes you feel uncomfortable because you know in the long run it's it's the kind of best thing. Are you working on anything that you could put out to people in a more formal platform? Yeah, so um, I, I am a qualified life coach, but I'm going to Canada um, at the end of September to do another course, which is kind of based more around that so that I can come back and put it into some kind of program. I think the self-discipline thing um, is so important, but I don't think I realised it and I... I was, I'm the kind of person who starts things and I've had like success with stuff, but then because something happens or I don't feel great, I just stop doing it. Um, and so I've never kind of continued to build. I go up and then I go back down, then I go up and then I go back down. Um, and so kind of understanding that because I'd never had any form of discipline in my life and I didn't really, I didn't ever have to do anything if I didn't want to do it. That I just give up on things really easily. So it was just that understanding and then, uh, yeah, building that in. But I'd say I've only been doing that since I got this radio show and I realised that things had to change. So it's quite a new thing for me as well, self-discipline. So um, I have a lot of um, issues with, with my own sort of self-worth and... Uh, and you know, even being paid um, for what I, I think I, I'm worth. And I think it's sort of stemmed from um, when I was in the corporate world, I was always scared of asking for a, for a pay rise, for example. And um, the times that I, I, I did uh, ask for a pay rise, I got shouted at. And even um, 
I remember I, I was a cowering mess at one time um, when my former boss um, really, really shouted at me and, and I ended up saying to her that um, I will never ask for a pay rise again. And since then, I've had quite low sort of self-esteem, low self-worth, and, uh, and I haven't really kind of you know, um, got myself away from that, even though I, I'm, I'm self-employed now. And, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, do, do you have any ad advice? I think the thing um, that kind of, that's, that's really helped me was, was the uh, Byron Katie method, because I think we have these limiting beliefs. And if you can identify them, and if you know what they are, that's already, like, one win for you. Because for a lot of people, they don't even realise they have them. They certainly don't know what they are. And so they're just kind of powerless, which is, I guess, how I was for a long time, just floating around thinking that I just, there's nothing I can do to change anything. Um, but her system is, is really interesting and it's all written down and you can go and print her worksheets off um, on uh, Byron Katie. Yeah, and it's called The School for the Work. Um, but she, she questions, so if you're limiting belief, so there's a sheet called One Belief at a Time. If your, your limiting belief was, um, for example, I'm too old, which is one of mine, um, then you would ask if it's true. And it's, it's just, there's a system of questions. And by the time you get to the end of it, you know nothing. Um, and so for me, that was really powerful because it helped me, uh, I guess, like rewrite those limiting beliefs and just to prove to myself that these things that are holding me back, they're structures of my own mind, not anybody else's. And sometimes I think we forget that. We, we kind of blame our past or we blame other people. But actually, it's us who has the power to control it. So and to change it. So yeah, I would definitely suggest her. Um, so a lot of times, like I've heard, like you can put post-it notes and like reread your aff affirmations or uh, gratitude journal when you are like real-time low. Mm -hmm. uh, what what hacks do you have when you are like really low and like how do you keep yourself in like a sane state, like? Um, I used to have post-it notes everywhere, but I never read them. I just put them everywhere, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. It's fine. I'll read them every day. And I just ignored them, and I just got used to them being there as these colorful little sticky bits of paper and just never paid any attention to them. So I think it's about making a commitment, and it's about what I said earlier, which is no matter how you feel, whether you feel great or whether you feel crap, that you have some kind of routine. It might be in the morning. It might be in the evening that you do at the same time every day that in some way uplifts you. And so mine is I get up, I meditate for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, depending on how much time I've got. Um, I have two books, one that has like a, basically they both have one thing to read every day. I read both of those books and then I've printed out my affirmations on paper. I have a little mirror next to my bed and I just look myself in the mirror and I read those affirmations. And sometimes I'll catch myself trying to do something else or stop myself from doing it. But I try to make sure that I do that every single day. And that sets me up on the right track and on the right path. Um, but it might be listening to a podcast or an audio, but there's just, just something that you commit to doing every single day, no matter how shit you feel, uh, that just gives you that little lift. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us some positive feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. By doing this, you'll be helping get messages about inspirational, positive, plant-powered living into people's earbuds. Until the next time, take care, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon.